You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Batman edition. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sanity of the Movies. I am Nathan. That is Ben. That is Jake. Hello, gentlemen. Hey. Hello. We are here to talk about 1989's biggest blockbuster, a movie that's arguably as important to why movies are the way they are as Jaws or Star Wars or one of those things, one of the big blockbusters. I guess the question- It's the first big blockbuster that I remember, I think. There we go. I mean, well- you know what? Let's just get into it. Let's talk a little, do a little baggage, and then we'll say a little context. Talk about Batman himself and the this movie's journey to the screen, which is a fascinating one and its impact. And then we'll talk through this bad boy. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. You got your Jack Nicholson, you got your other aspects, all that, all the many many things to talk about in this movie. But yeah, why don't we just get straight into our bat gidge? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. It is our baggage. What baggage, Jake, you were already getting going. What baggage do you bring to Batman 89? So, man, this movie does take me back to my childhood in a way that I think very few movies can. Because it came out in 89 right around the time of my parents' divorce, I remember very vividly going to see the movie at the drive-in with my dad and my brother and not my mom. And at Holiday Drive-In just in Rio here, 45 minutes down the road or whatever, 40 minutes down the road. Pretty cool, fun experience. And just very sort of like, I remember the feeling of those opening credits and then the realization of it's the Batman sign. I remember all the cool toy marketing, all the like special edition cups you could get at Walmart or whatever with the Batman stuff on it and having the Batman t-shirts and all that stuff. And I got the, the bat plane for Christmas. I remember that bat plane. And my brother broke it and I've never forgiven him. And man, just so all the cool toy stuff, all the cool. And it was just different because I'd grown up like I had had to that point still, you know, the old Adam West Batman stuff that I'd watch at my grandparents' house and just thought was fun and neat. I'm only like five at the time. But then this Batman was just like super cool. And there was a lot in the movie I didn't understand or get, but man, just felt epic and cool. And the other really cool thing is, I don't know if other cities were like this, but Evansville had at the time, and I don't even remember if it was like Showplace Cinema used to do this or if it was like Shoe Carnival or what. But there were these like places, there were these places that would rent out these big spotlights and they would shine them into the sky at night for like sales or yeah, I, I, I don't even this. know what it was. Like, I don't know. Like, I'd have to talk to my mom or something about what it was. But it was so cool because, you know, you're a kid and at the same time, so you could just be in the car at night and pretend like you're seeing the bat signal and that Batman was out protecting the city and the, the, keeping the streets clean and fun. And they started doing things like at the fall festival, putting Batman on top of having, so we have this big fall festival in town. It's, I think, credited as being the second largest street festival in the country behind Mardi Gras. People say that, and then people say that's actually not... And people say it's not true. And then you look at the Wikipedia entry, and the Wikipedia entry quotes that, whether or not it's true. 
It's hard to it's hard to say. Hey, wait a second. Did you just say it's on Wikipedia? I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, yeah. so it's true. Yeah, obviously. But anyhow, it's big. It's hundreds of thousands of over a hundred thousand people come through it. Well over. And and it's been that way for a long time. And it used to be dangerous because or feel dangerous or whatever because of gang violence and stuff like that. And now it's really safe and clean. But one of the things that they did is they would they stationed cops on rooftops just to sort of keep eyes on things. And they they'd start having cops dressed as cop dressed as Batman up on the rooftop. It's just become like a tradition, like a fun thing. So to this day, you go to the fall festival and Batman, I think now Batman and Robin uh, will be, will occasionally come up to the edge of a rooftop and you'll make, they'll make an appearance, but they'll actually, they're actually cops who are watching things, keeping an eye on things. So anyhow, it just sort of like felt integrated into my life in a really fun, cool way. But I haven't seen this movie in a really long time. I haven't wanted to see this movie in a really long time. I've sort of just, Tim Burton's Tim Burton. There's also a sort of like gross vibe around this movie and this world that maybe come from some of the later films, but also this one all just sort of playing together over time. I just not, it's not been appealing to me. I think. And so it's been years and years since I was a kid, probably that I watched this movie. Put a mental pin in that, listener, because I think the fact that Jake has not seen this movie for a long time makes a big difference to this discussion. Well, I think it does. I, I know that it does. I mean, yesterday, Ben and I were talking, I saw it and watched it, and I was like, can you think of a, a bigger waste of life than watching the 89 Batman? Yeah, I'll just go ahead and say, I think what you guys both experienced was the surprise and pleasure of going back to something that actually did have some real... Some magic to it. Whereas I have kept a relationship with this movie. Maybe you have you two have too, Ben. I don't actually know. but Somewhat, yeah. I, I have kept up with this movie over the years. I go, for whatever reason, I find myself drawn back to these two films every few years. And so there was nothing particularly so, so, fresh about its approach for me, which I think makes a big difference. So it's a, sort of the same thing with the Donner Supermans with me, where I've those are more formative for me in terms of being a vehicle for processing my relationship with my dad and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so I've kept in touch with those movies. And that may have actually made you like them a little bit less when we watched them. Yeah, I just, just thought recently. they were bad movies the last time we watched them. Whereas I was like, oh, the theme and, you know, all the stuff that's just like, yeah, the theme theme still gets me. The theme will probably always get me, but for reasons that I can't help. But the movies themselves, I felt like I've just been in enough conversation with them that I was able to step back and be objective and be like, yeah, they're bad. Christopher Reeve is awesome outside of that. They're just bad movies that meant something to me at the time and have meant something since because of what it meant at the time. Right. But well, Ben, what's your bat, bat gadge? Bat gadge. When I, when this came out, I would have been almost seven and I was not allowed to see it. My parents went to see it. I was not allowed. They just thought it would be too dark. Did they like it? I maybe, I don't remember. I don't remember. So it wasn't, it was on my radar only a little for whatever reason. I don't know why it wasn't more on my radar. Maybe I wasn't quite into comics by that time. If I was, Spider-Man was the best. And have I mentioned before that I had a copy, a random copy, who knows where I got it, of, uh, oh, hold on. Mein Kampf? No, no. (laughs) 
Good one, Nathan. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Ben's a I had a copy Ben of... was just talking about his racist views before the podcast. <laughs> no, yeah. You know, oh Ben's goodness. not a Nazi. It's, it's perfectly possible to be a white supremacist and not be a Nazi. <laughs> like, let's not paint with too broad of a brush, people. I appreciate your, um, your support. <laughs> Speaking of Nazism, I had a copy of... No, this has nothing to do with Nazism. <laughs> I had a copy of Luke Cage and Iron Fist, or maybe it was Power Man. That was what he was called. Power Man and Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. Yes, two of the greatest superheroes ever created. So who knows when I got that. Batman, I think I saw it when I was 10 or 11 at a friend's house, and I liked it okay. As a kid, I remember wanting more action. Yeah, but Burton has no interest in fisticuffs. He doesn't, and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted, even as a kid. So I've probably, I've enjoyed it more since the time I really wanted, but even now watching it, I'm like, ah, I'm just, I'm waiting for a little more fisticuffs. It's right around the corner. Nope, it's not. It's not. So I've seen this several times over the years. I saw it probably five years ago, six years ago. I don't really remember, but it feels like it's lived in my brain for as long as I can remember. And I watched it last night with my wife. She only, she watched like an hour 15 before she needed to go to bed. That was super fun. It was like discovering it again. Like, oh, this movie does things. It's clever. It's cartoonish, yet grim. It's all these things on purpose. The script is fun. You, every frame is fun. Michael Keaton is great. There's some actual wit to everything that Burton is doing. <laughs> I really just had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But we, I yeah. know. I Yeah, I, I know we are. So in any case, it's some kind of formative film for me. But later, I remember still the first time that I discovered Batman Returns, which I'd never seen. I just heard it was, I got the impression it was grimmer, which mm-hmm. is true, and it, that it was darker, which is true, and that it was boring, which is not true. So and that it had no action, which is actually not true. It has more action than Batman, you could argue. But I remember the first time seeing that and thinking, what in the world? How did I not know this film existed? This is the comic book movie that I didn't know existed. It was probably, that was when I was about to start college. So, so Burton was important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, as so Burton's always one of those guys that everyone assumes that I love or all the girls in high school. Eh, Nathan, you must really like. Tim Burton and, and Edgar Allan Poe. And Edgar Allan Poe. And I always, I always <laughs> resented that a lot because it's like uh-huh. Tim Burton is such a brand. Like he is such a lamestream, hot topic way yeah. of mm-hmm. processing your emo self. If you're really going to be dark, then I don't actually read Mein Kampf, but you know, read Schopenhauer or something. Like be cool and find something outsider instead of like if, if everyone is doing the same outsider thing then it's not an outsider thing so i think i've always kind of had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about tim burton you notice how i didn't say nietzsche i said schopenhauer i went wow. one step deeper baby which is just his own kind of lame i acknowledge that I, everything i said was lame but really there are there's no way to be a true outsider be a Christian. That's the way to be a true outsider. There you go. To actually be cool. Really believe that, but it's hard to say in a non-sarcastic voice. But so long as being an outsider is what's being packaged and marketed, it's right. just turtles <laughs> all the way down, guys. Sorry. It's turtles all the way down. And Tim Burton, he wasn't as much of a brand. Nightmare on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, what's it called? Nightmare Before Christmas had not mm-hmm. really been discovered. Well, it hadn't even come out, I guess, in the early days of my childhood, but it, it had not become... The perennial hot topic, like just everybody's got a picture or a T-shirt of Jack Skellington. Right. That movie has been so eaten up and regurgitated by our culture. Commercialized. It's just it's disgusting. And it's a cute little 
70 minute skeleton musical i like it but just fine but you know get a life people yeah so in any case i i sort of had the, that with burton but then i also had the guy is especially in the old days uh, he was such a striking visual stylist yep. and many of his movies even at the time i didn't like that much but i just liked to live there i liked the danny elfman music the twinkling kind of choral stuff edward scissorhands is like that it's not a movie that i ever really liked but mm-hmm. it's just yeah. a very pretty gothic fairy tale kind of world and nobody else does i, mean, I don't know that anyone that anyone else even these days with burton being such a brand name like we're going to hire Tim Burton. We're going to pay him a billion dollars. We're going to have him direct two seconds of that Wednesday Adams things. And then we can say Tim Burton. Now he does that sort of thing all the time. I don't think Tim Burton's been interested in living in this industry for years. But but he used to. Who else would you? You might bring up Terry Gilliam. Who's, yeah. Who's a very different sort of visual In terms stylist. of people where you're just like, if I'm going to see their movie, I know I'm going to live in their visual world. Wes Anderson is actually really the one these days totally different kind of thing but it is just you know you're not watching a movie that's trying to be realistic or faux realistic at all it's, it's you're entering somebody else's visual mm-hmm. world yeah. and they have a visual sense and they're bringing it to bear on absolutely everything and, and you could say david fincher or nolan or you could yeah. say different people have that but what we're talking about is d- a design aesthetic like a and, and, and more like a fantasia yeah or some it, kind of fan, visual fantasy like you got burton oh you got gillian you got did um, you watch the did you watch the napoleon trailer i saw oh, that man, it, it, was, yeah. it was playing so in the background yeah. and i but it's just like they, it's just such a we wash everything out it's the color that's, palette. that's really it's, Scott for you. Well, I, I saw know. somebody, did you see the tweet where it's somebody so compared lame. a painting of the pyramid of Napoleon by I the pyramid? Did, yeah. And then the, the urine colored stupid, they hit the Oh Country for All. No, no Country for All. Uh, no, they hit the Oh Brother Where Art Thou button on their computer and yeah. sucked all the, and it's like, it's Hebrew, Egypt, so it must have a urine yellow filter. Actually, everything has to have a urine yellow filter. I, I, Unless it's a battle in the cold and then everything needs to be blue. Yeah, it's like Norway has a blue filter and Spain has a yellow filter. And you go to these places, they just have regular colors. Because it's Um, real life. Yeah. It it actually is one of the things that Mangold deserves a little credit for in Indiana Jones is not... Just filtering the crap out of In some sense, he paid a little bit of tribute to the old style of of less color correction, which was nice. It made it feel more like an Indiana Jones movie. In any sense, I love Burton's... I do love Burton's style i love his aesthetic i love edward gory who's a oh ben's getting a phone call i love being interrupted in the middle of burying my soul <laughs> me too okay good well thank you for making it's it happen brought us together i do so i have a little sort of love-hate relationship with burton and i always have and i suppose it'd be unfair to say i was more just like burton's cool when i was younger like everybody let's why don't we just name some burt the actual burton films that we either like or used to like uh, okay, I'd be lying if I said I didn't really like uh, Sleepy Hollow, which is probably never seen it. Way too gory and all that, but it's really gross. But I definitely liked it too. Yeah, it's very cool. The just the tree, the gnarled sort of. And Tim Burton's best action movie, right? Yeah, it's got good action and the autumnal sort of feel of it. The jack o' lantern kind of is yeah. is, is not awesome. recommended. <laughs> um, drop every if you're still watching this podcast and you're not watching sleeping hollow i don't know what you are thinking <laughs> watch uh, it with your kids right. no, don't do that. <laughs> you're four-year-old i one thing that does not well it would not hold up about that at all is johnny depp giving one of his gay kind of dorking around performances yeah, as like yeah. a girly man which felt a lot more subversive back then when 
we had some last vestige no of real Jack masculinity to push against. Yeah, yeah. And before and pre-Jack Sparrow. Yeah. But now it'd just be like, this is pathetic. So. Mars Attacks. I like Mars Attacks. Mars Never Attacks seen time. Mars Attacks so is silly. a mess, but it's it's fun. It's a pretty fun mess. I mean, I, I like the old, I like the classics. I like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Never seen it. I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I think I liked it. It's got a lot of funny stuff. Uh, son, he gets knocked out when he's at the Alamo. And son, do you remember anything? I remember the Alamo. And then they all, yeehaw! <laughs> just fire their guns in the air. It's funny. Yeah, I mean, Ed Wood used to be a favorite yeah. film of mine. Very Never seen it. It's so gross. It's very gross. But uh, so many of these it things. Is, it is a, actually a really good movie. It's a masterpiece as far as evoking a certain time and a place and a a bad 50s filmmaker. Too bad about all the pre-transgender kind of stuff in it and in Edward's life, Yeah, to be fair. Big Fish, I liked Big Fish, Fish at the time. I assume it's not actually a good Saw movie. it in college for the first time and only time. Yeah. Remember liking it. Yeah, I like yeah. Big Fish and I cannot lie. You other bros may deny, but thanks for putting a hat on that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else got that reference until you did. Oh man! <laughs> and then after Big Fish, is there anything good? There's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No, no. Hated Corp, that there's one. Corpse Bride. Never I really dislike, it. even though I kind of I respect it in some sense. But it's I just it just is no good. It's just too dumb. Sweeney Todd, not willing to see. Never saw it. Liked Sweeney Todd as a horror movie, hated it as a musical adaptation because they got a bunch of people who can't sing. It's one of Sondheim's best musicals, and we got Johnny Depp growling his way through it, and then Helena Bonham Carter, and it's like, if you just swap them out with people that can sing, then you'd really have something. But, yeah. There's nothing after that. It's Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows. That was terrible, and I never saw. Big Eyes, never saw that. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Dumbo. At a certain it. point, he just gives up. At a certain point, he's just like, all right, do you want my name to put over your poster? And I'll have fun designing some little curly trees to go in the background, and we'll hire Johnny Depp to put on a funny hat. I don't think Tim Burton guys didn't has throw for out Beetlejuice. Time. I have weirdly never, never seen, seen Be- Beetlejuice all the way through. You'd think and that so would have all been these a- movies you've mentioned, I've seen like three of them. And but I grew up with Beetlejuice and Batman. Huh. Grew up with Beetlejuice. We just said it three times. I don't times. think I was allowed to see Beetlejuice. <laughs> I don't think I should have been allowed to see Beetlejuice, but I saw it many times. <laughs> I've seen parts of Beetlejuice. I just have never sat down and watched Beetlejuice all the way through. I Beetlejuice? I've never watched Beetlejuice. <laughs> I, I think I found Michael Keaton annoying. He's just, he's a lot. He's a, He a was lot. a lot in that movie, for sure. I was actually pretty, I was expecting him to feel like a lot in the Batman movie. And I thought he was kind of just awesome. Go he's got around. that one scene where where he's like, hey, get nuts? I'm, go- I'm going to get, I have a scene with Jack Nicholson. Do you mind if I do some acting? And they're like, <laughs> okay, it doesn't have anything to do with their character, but go ahead. <laughs> Let's get nuts. <laughs> uh, do your Michael Keaton thing. Yeah, that was a very Michael Keaton insertion into. Well, it's kind of like in his earlier career, he's channeling Jack Nicholson. And then they hired the actual Jack Nicholson. And so he can't just be it, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. But he's like, I'm doing my big scene with Jack Nicholson. So do you think I can be Jack Nicholson in that scene? And they're like, okay, Michael. We'll give it to you, buddy. But it'll stand out like a sore thumb. I am pro Michael Keaton. Just as another thing of baggage. I do not find myself with the affection. Like everybody has been so excited about the Keaton sans or whatever that's been happening. Kicked off with Spider-Man. Yeah, everybody was. And I was like, yeah, it's cool. It's nice to see him. But I I, really liked seeing him in that Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I did not feel any sort of much. I liked him in that McDonald's movie. I mean, I liked Michael. Oh, yeah, he was great in the McDonald's movie. He's he's really good. The founder. And I saw that Birdman thing, which was fine. I wanted to see it, but I never saw it. I don't know that I'd go out of my way, but whatever. It's interesting. 
he yeah and i don't know i'm i'm i don't find i don't have affection for him like some people do well i had to watch mr mom and what's the one where he's got six clones of himself multiplicity, multiplicity. those Never movies are terrible or as a kid they're terrible I, it is michael keaton michael keatoning it up in really weird icky feeling ways i remember liking mr mom as a kid seeing it one time but I, I don't think I'd ever want to go back I to it. I did not like Mr. Mom. I didn't like the feel of it. I, I felt like I would not like this man as a person or as a dad or as anybody in this. I just don't. Well, that is the good thing he about. He didn't feel safe. Current Michael Keaton's career, he plays villains or character right. parts, which is where he belongs because he's never actually felt like a, like Jack Nicholson, you can't help but like him even when he's frying somebody with an electric <laughs> joy buzzer. Michael Keaton does not have that quality. Michael right. Keaton is actually of kind of a, he doesn't let you in, or I, I don't he's, know how to define what the difference is. But. He, he was the right kind of misanthrope for sort of standoffish, broken, scary Batman. Right. In this one, where the movie leans so hard into that sort of thing, he actually did feel pretty heroic and virtuous. Right. But, but with something like Beetlejuice, he doesn't have the innate charm that a Jim, even a Jim Carrey or a Robin Williams brings to that kind of manic role where you're just like, right. eh, underneath it all, I kind of like this guy, even if I can't stand the shtick he's doing. And, and same thing for like Mr. Mom. It's like, there's just, there, you're right. There's an edge to it. There's just yeah. an edge to it where you're like, I don't think this guy's actually actually loves his wife. I don't think he's actually put upon. I think he's just angry at the world. Yeah, like Michael just, Keaton does anger about as well as anybody. Angry. But again, not in a way like Jack Nicholson feels angry, but you love Jack Nicholson. Yeah. He's just a charismatic guy as the obvious comparison. There's a, some kind of joy. It may be twisted or perverse, but real joy that feels like it comes through in Jack Nicholson that does make him feel kind of charming. Yeah, you just love, he's just a magnetic screen press. Yeah, I mean, he's, like he's he, arguably the great actor. Maybe he of the enjoys being bad, you know, or playing the bad boy or being whatever being angry on screen enough like he just enjoys it but yeah you go find any clip of him in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and you just love the guy yeah it, it actually it's it throws that the, the balance of that movie off because the guy's like a, a borderline child rapist i forget what he's in the institution for yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, the, the story actually person. works better if you don't like mcnulty as much but you can't help but fall in love with jack nicholson and it it works as kind of a rabble rousing mm-hmm. Mrs. Ratchet sucks kind of uh, yeah. or nurse Ratchet sucks kind of stick it to the man screed, but it would be a more interesting movie. Maybe if you got Michael Keaton in there or somebody where you're like, this guy's dangerous. Um, Jack Nicholson's dangerous, but he's just lovable. Mm-hmm. So just to finish up my Batman baggage though, I have always loved Batman. I've always been aware of Batman. I've always I read Batman comics when I was a kid. I watched the Batman animated series, which I loved. The best Batman of all time. I have a Batman poster hanging on my wall. That was like a guilty pleasure through middle school. Yes. Was coming home and watching the four o'clock Batman the animated series with my little brothers. It's really cool. It's it's quite good. We're saying nothing new because millennials all remember that thing and love that thing. But yeah, it would have felt. Super embarrassing to admit that to my friends at the time, but it doesn't feel embarrassing at all to admit it. No, it's it's just a quality. I think most of my friends probably, I think a good number of my friends probably did the same thing. I think Kevin Conroy's voice for me is how I identify Batman. Like if I'm just reading, oh, yeah. if you just say Batman or if I'm reading a Batman comic, I think of Batman that way. 
Which means that I've always sort of thought of Batman as a more paternalistic figure yeah. than mm-hmm. a peer figure. Like if Indiana Jones is just a young dude getting the lady and doing Batman's more like a city father to me at least. And that makes a difference, I think, to how I judge certain things in Batman movies. Yeah. I'm always weirded out by any fornication scene in a Batman movie because it just feels like that's something like Indiana Jones or James Bond. I don't like it, but that's the character. That's who they are. That's who yeah. they are. Batman, it always feels like, eh, I expected more of you, Batman. You're, I, I don't just want to, okay, sure, you have a love life, but I don't really want to see it. It's not, it's not You for need me to feel to, more like a righteous father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So th- for that reason, I actually like the Ben Affleck Batman, maybe the best just in terms of performance vibe yeah just the older like batman should be in his 40s for me more than in his 30s but in any case yeah i love Batman. the batman the matt reeves actually puts that character on that trajectory Mm -hmm. yes which i like a lot it's one of the things that that movie does very well it does it really well it plays and so much of it just comes down to his relationship with the police force the sense of legitimacy and the sense of detachment yes yeah. And yep. Nolan wanted to play with the whole vigilante, what you don't understand, the forces you've unleashed, which is fine. That was exciting about that movie at the time. And he had a nice relationship with Gary Oldman. But it, I, yeah, I like Batman as kind of an institutional force. I, I, yeah, he's got a, he actually has a badge or something like that. Right. That the, he could whip out. He's all but deputized. Like they can't quite, there's always going to be some goofy bureaucrat mayor that doesn't like him. But Gordon and the police force are on his side. He can show up. He can get what he needs. They <clears throat> want him to show up. They want him to come. They need his help. They're going to call him in. Right. In that sense, he's barely a vigilante. He's just a, he's just another part of. He's a specialist contractor. It's not different than any other sort of like private detective guy that you know you bring in sherlock holmes when you need sherlock holmes right and you bring in marlo when you need marlo or you bring in and you bring in batman when you need batman right yeah sherlock holmes is a very good way to think about it because i think he's he is much more in the tradition of those 19th century pulp heroes who yeah go ahead well you're just making me think about batman v superman our Mm -hmm. favorite superhero movie of all time here at sanity at the movies and how it resets, it does what Burton does, which is that, oh, there's a bad creature out there, which is odd. Mm-hmm. It's odd it that Snyder odd. made that choice to like, why not set him up as an established dude? But no, actually the police force is like, no, he's real. Stop there. You there. You know, you're like, what? Wait, why? Yeah, it's, um, it's yeah. The, the, it's whole, the whole, the whole weird reset. And he's branding people it's and stuff. It's, it's really stupid. Yeah, it's, it is, it is. It stupid. just shows you how much Snyder, for all that we are Snyder apologists to some degree on this podcast, never really just, understood. He doesn't have a relationship with the characters. That's right. It's, he's like, oh, sure, of course Batman kills. What's the problem? All my characters kill. <laughs> They're murdering psychopaths. It's cool. <laughs> but you know who feels like he has a really well established relationship with this character in retrospect is Tim Burton. Yeah, which is not true. But it felt that uh, but way. But it feels it feels that way, yeah. Um, it felt that way to me in a way that I was just like, wow. Yeah. Well, by the time you get to Batman Returns, Tim Burton does, but it's, 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 not, it's, it's not a fully Burtonized. It's a fully Burtonized It's his Batman. Batman. I, think, I think Burton, there's one yeah. thing that Bert, Burton loves, and he loves duality. And he gets that about all the characters in these things, actually. I mean, even somebody like Vicki Vale, he wants to be like, okay, she's a... She's this over here, but then she's a freak. She's attracted to these freaks. Burton Burton loves that sort of thing. That aspect of. But then the, f- I mean, even that he plays with so that I, I, 
I found myself just really loving so many of the, what I felt like were subtle touches in a pretty hammy movie. Like, um, who is Bruce Wayne really? Well, he's really Batman. And you see that a couple of times, but they don't say it the way that they would say it in a movie. They'd make a big deal about it and they would say it. But they'd say it five times. The fact that he just, we're going to have murderous clown mimes with machine guns and everybody's going to duck and he's not going to react. That scene is awesome. That's such a cool choice. Like he just doesn't react. He fixates on Joker, on Jack Napier. He's putting together who he is. And he just, he's not, he gets uh, shot in the shoulder, like grazed, his coat does. No reaction. He's just like fixated and he follows him to the car. Like he is always Batman. Well, the the person I kept thinking of this time, it's Mm -hmm. maybe this is a silly connection, but I could not stop thinking about Elon Musk. I I think he is so that style. The way that Keaton plays him is such kind of an autistic tech billionaire style. What we would now think of as a tech billionaire, just the, the guy that doesn't have social skills, that is hyper fixated on the things that he's hyper fixated on, that sort of uh, is editing everything else out, like he only sees the things that he's yeah. interested in. Well, and in his lack of social skills, he turns into a social skill. So he becomes like my wife was like, oh, he's kind of debonair anyway. Right. right. So he's the like Elon Musk. He probably this character would kill in an interview probably because he would just say what he would think. He wouldn't even realize he was being awkward. Everybody would share the clips online, like, oh, that was a funny. He didn't even mean he it to be funny. Just didn't care. He's just who he is. But it's not an aggressive not caring. It's right. just like a, a genuine. I mean, it is. I hate to throw around the word lightly, but it is kind of an autistic or um, Asperger's kind of. But with Keaton, there's another layer of, I kind of know that I'm like this if I want to. Yeah. I, I have a little sense of humor about it. Yeah. yeah. And that's really fun. Like all those layers of Keaton's performance. Well, are. you have that. And again, it, like the soup scene plays with that. Right. And we get to end up then in the butler's quarters with Alfred telling the story and being the actual charming one who's bringing this couple together and creating a social situation they can't create for themselves. Right. Well, and it's interesting in that the movie doesn't want to, the movie respects Batman's privacy. Tim Burton respects his privacy. And in a sort of very Elon Musk sort of way, it's like, eh, at the end of the day, this guy's actually unknowable and we're not going to let you in. And the movie's not going to, yeah, we understand his past. Yeah, and you can never feel like you've got in. He can only tell you that you've got in. Or that you have it. And so Vicki Vale can feel like she she's never gotten in and she doesn't know how to get in. And then he just tells her, you got in. But it still doesn't feel that way to anybody. It's just like, right, just to him. Then it's so interesting, though, to see a movie where the audience is in the same position. Like, we're not granted access that much more access than Vicky is. Well, and that makes everything that he does interesting. Everything yeah. that you see, every 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 new thing that he does, you're like this guy's interesting. Every, never every facial expression. Yeah, yeah, every everything feels like Tim Burton is doling it out sparingly, but not in an irritating way. And so what's the difference in what Nolan would do? Nolan wants you to actually get in, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. he wants he he needs him to feel vulnerable and real. Yeah. Whereas this is the guy who walks, he's like a picket or like a, the famous, he's like the general, he's like Alexander the Great. He's going to lead the army into battle and he's going to stand tall on the horse and all the spears and bullets are going to miss him because he's just Batman. Mm-hmm. And that is what is interesting and fun, even though that that confrontation, Bruce Wayne, Joker confrontation at Vicki Vale's apartment is is weird. It is true to the character they're creating in him in that sense of like, he might die, he might not die. 
it just doesn't matter. Like he's going to make a decision and the decision's going to be to face up. And yeah. And that's how he got where he did and one day it might just end with a bullet in his face and but he he doesn't like he doesn't save the day unless he consistently makes the choice to just sort of like stand stand tall and walk right into the bullets. You don't conquer half the world unless you make that choice and things the brakes just keep falling your way. Right. And you don't conquer Gotham unless you just make that choice and the brakes keep falling your way. And for some people they do and for some people they don't. But the only way to actually do it is to do it. But I think choice might actually be the wrong word. I think all the other Batmans, the way they're played, they make a choice. And they're always making a choice. And they have the angst of, ah, I have to make this choice. Should I make this choice? Uh, this guy's choice was made for him when he was six years old. And right. he's just broken that way. And there's a part of him that's just locked off even to himself. And that's that's just who he is in, in a way that's actually yeah, much, I think that's a, I think that's a better construction. Much more but, profound than like a Pattinson or mm-hmm. a... Uh, bail or something like that where they're always kind of like i could lead a normal life there's no there's no choice for this guy for this guy yeah, affleck's yeah, more like sense. that too yeah affleck's just more settled he's the warmer version yeah affleck just but. actually feels like i've dealt with my demons i mean minus the stupid plot constructions of the branding and stuff once you get him right, in yeah. justice league and stuff it's like i've i'm just i've settled into my role as batman and i have a somewhat well integrated life what's my superpower i'm rich right and yeah, more of that, please, with our Batmans. But super detective Batman, who's rich, and just uses whatever special powers he has. Yeah, well, That's and fun. as as much fun as we are having talking about Keaton and the way he plays it, and as good as it is, I am sick of like we don't need another autistic superhero who's broken. Like, let's what would actually be refreshing at this point is just some a superhero from a healthy whole family who yeah. is just. Are you guys thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> New Fantastic Four movie, baby! <laughs> Is that the direction I was trying to lead us? Yeah, I, I thought You're right. sure it was. Well, that was the thing that felt refreshing about the first Iron Man and some of the early Marvel movies when they hit is, oh, these guys are having fun. It's been a while since we've seen that. Yep. And it seems like Tony Stark, for all of his brokenness, leads a pleasant life. <laughs> Maybe a debauched one. But... Like you actually like spending time. Like it's it it, it, it you don't envy Michael Keaton's life. No, uh-uh. you don't. Nobody wants to be comes away wanting to be Michael Keaton's Batman or Bruce Wayne. Not I mean they want to have his toys. Right. Sure. How does he get such <laughs> wonderful toys? Yep. But and so you have plenty of merchandising opportunities. Oh yeah. But you don't. But you don't want to actually be that guy. No. And you you don't really want. I don't know. You'd have to ask a woman, but I can't imagine too many women. I mean, I can. There's plenty of women who are just, he's powerful. Who want to be with who? Keaton? The or? powerful, mysterious, rich man. But I think there, there has it, to be a little bit of It wouldn't be pleasant. Vic- it would have to be a pretty broken attraction. Well, it's, it's a little bit of the Vicky, what they actually play with with Vicky, like the, I'm going to fix this guy and I'm going to be the complete master of the emotional side of this relationship because this guy brings, which is certainly a, an archetype that plays out in real life all the time. There's only one master of the relationship, and it's Alfred. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, oh, guys, there's so much to talk about. The, my, the only other baggage I want to say is that uh, my daughter learned Batman's name. It was like one of her first words. And to this day, she's two years old. She goes around. She says, Batman. And if she sees any superhero, she, she assumes it's Batman. He is just the archetype to her. She'll walk past a Spider-Man poster or something and point at it and say, Matt, man. 
We don't try to explain to her because it's proper that she thinks all superheroes are Batman. (laughs) (laughs) The true archetype. The the true archetype. Uh Um, Yeah, I love Batman. I I guess I should say I grew up with this movie having a faint whiff of the forbidden. I don't like Ben. I don't think I saw it until I was about 10. And the VHS, I certainly remember. I remember the icon. I remember the toys. I have such nostalgia for owning toys before I even saw the movie. And in some sense, the movie was a disappointment simply because it couldn't live up to my imagination of all these wonderful toys. I had them, I remember the Batman Returns, McDonald's run, the little penguin mobile that would yep. go along the ground and stuff the like spinny that. spinny umbrella. Yeah, spinny umbrella stuff. Like yep. my imagination has always been very triggered by Batman, if that's the word that I want. Uh, the... I have such nostalgia for this stuff, so much more so than for any superhero. I don't think you guys – Jake's a Superman guy. Ben's a Spider-Man guy. I am mm-hmm. certainly a Batman guy, and and it wasn't – I don't – I think playing to any particular darkness in me or anything, it was just the iconography was so cool. and Some of it's got to be timing because we, you mentioned at the top some of it is the iconography, but, right. but also – you said blockbuster in the in the line of Jaws and things like that, and there is a sense in which I can't think of any movie growing up that feels like it hit as big, like people lined up to see it. I, I think that's true. I think that's literally true. I think Endgame might give people some notion today, but not really. Nothing um, like I mean, Titanic. The, Titanic's the other one. Titanic. In our there was some vibe about Independence Day, but it didn't quite. It didn't any touch this the prequels i guess but even that to me for my like sense of what is a literal people lined up around the block blockbuster it's this movie like there's nothing that feels that way yeah i mean we were all like we said five six seven when this movie hit so that that's important to remember but yeah I think that that brings us to some much-needed broader context. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Ben, you went into the cave oh, of the Bat Cave of history, and yeah, I did. Learned a little bit about Batman himself, right? Yeah, I did. Batman. Well, Batman is a DC property everyone knows and it came after superman superman debuted in 1938 you might remember listener from our previous context on superman dc was like we want another one give us another big one we want more so bob kane make us a new one bob kane was an artist to dc he was shockingly of Jewish descent. Born, born like, Robert Kahn. Yeah, Robert Kahn. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, he was friends in high school with a guy named Will Eisner, also Jewish. Will Eisner, you might know his name if you like comics, if you like... Will Eisner... Graphic novels. Redefined graphic art. He is... That's right. Very important. And his, yep. his legacy, unfortunately, is The Spirit, which Frank Miller made a terrible movie out of. Mm-hmm. But Will Eisner, hugely important to the way that sequential art is done, uh, just redefined the form. Well, in in making it considered art right, or yeah. literature or something. We have so, the phrase sequential art and graphic novel from Will from, Eisner. From Eisner. I mean, he gave it class. Yeah, he. if you've ever, I don't recommend this at all, but I looked at his book of stories, sequential art stories, A Contract with God. It's this depressing series of stories about hard luck people in the tenements and difficult situations. Yeah, like it has like a man in Brooklyn and stuff. It, it has like sex and nudity in it. It's, it was, I, which I wasn't expecting. 
many years ago when I was yeah, like, he's oh. no fun. I mean, his big thing was, yeah, I don't we like could tell boring all. stories with comics too, but I, I, yeah, I didn't like it at all. But it is artistic for what that's worth. Anyway, Bob Kane trained as an animator at the Max Flesher studio in 1934, which is the one that would create those cool Superman cartoons in the 40s, the Art Deco stuff. In 1936, started drawing freelance comics, worked for a company that created things for the two companies that would later become DC Comics. And if, you were, if you've heard any of these contexts, you realize that, man, the publishing industry has a lot of long, boring stories about subsidiaries merging and becoming another thing and then retitling themselves. And dun, 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 dun. it's really, <laughs> yep, we could fill hours, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> with this content. That's the comics industry. So uh, eventually, he just came to work for DC. But DC was Detective Comics and later called DC. Okay, Bob Kane came up with a preliminary sketch of the Bat-Man, just like Spider-Man. Showed his conception to Bill Finger, who was a writer that he'd hired to ghostwrite a comic he was drawing. Here's Bob Kane's account of what happened from his 1989 autobiography. One day I called Bill and said, I have a new character called the Batman, and I've made some crude elementary sketches I'd like you to look at. He came over and I showed him the drawings. At the time, I only had a small domino mask like the one Robin later wore on Batman's face. Bill said, why not make him look more like a bat? <laughs> Seems pretty sensible. And put a hood on him. Take the eyeballs out and just put slits for eyes to make him look more mysterious. At this point, the Batman wore a red union suit. The wings, trunks, and mask were black. I thought that red and black would be a good combination. Bill said that the costume was too bright. Color it dark gray to make it look more ominous. Smart guy, Bill. The cape looked like two stiff bat wings attached to his arms. As Bill and I talked, we realized that these wings would get cumbersome when Batman was in action and changed them into a cape, scallop, to look like bat wings when he was fighting or swinging down on a rope. Also, he didn't have any gloves on, and we added them so that he wouldn't leave fingerprints. So, there you go. Kane thought up the wings originally through Da Vinci's sketch of an ornithopter. Bill Finger came up with the name Bruce Wayne. I'll read a quote from Finger about that. Bruce Wayne's first name came from Robert the Bruce, the Scottish patriot. Wayne, being a playboy, was a man of gentry. I searched for a name that would suggest colonialism. I tried Adams, Hancock. Then I thought of Mad Anthony Wayne, unquote. Yeah, everyone knows who that is, so no need to say, no, I'm just, uh, Mad Anthony Wayne, he was one of actually America's founding fathers. I'd never heard of him. I, <laughs> why was he called Mad Anthony Wayne? I couldn't tell you. Finger also mentioned that the newspaper comic hero, The Phantom, was an inspiration. The Phantom inspired a bunch of superheroes. So just and like, one great Billy Zane movie. And one, one, one great Billy No doubt in the future of sanity at the movies. Oh, yes. Uh, if we really wanted to waste our time. And just like Superman, Batman has this dual identity. Some of the same pulp heroes fed into his creation that fed into Superman, Zaro, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Kane names the movie The Mark of Zaro as an influence, which Superman's creator is also named. As for the detective part of things, Bill Finger is responsible for that which is based on pulp heroes like Doc Savage, Shadow, which is, a, of course, a great... Alec Guinness movie. There we go. Alec Guinness. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, no, no. Alec Guinness. Uh, Alec... <laughs> that would be awesome. What's his name? The guy that shot somebody. I just lost Baldwin. his name. Baldwin. Thank you. Yes. The great Alec Baldwin movie. Dick Tracy, Sherlock Holmes, of course. So what's significant about some of this history is that for decades, no one knew Bill Finger's name because Bob Kane buried it yes great uh, controversy here. oh my goodness yeah it's this. a bab kane had his name on batman stories and at some point he was given an actual byline batman created by bob kane bill finger got no credit and for years bob kane denied that anyone ever helped him create anything about batman and he even explicitly 
He said in this 1965 open letter to fans that, quote, It seemed to me that Bill Finger has given out the impression that he and not myself created the Batman, as well as Robin and all the other leading villains and characters. This statement is fraudulent and entirely untrue, unquote. So he also said, quote, The trouble with being a ghostwriter or artist is that you must remain rather anonymously without credit. However, if one wants the credit, then one has to cease being a ghost or follower and become a leader or innovator, unquote. So (laughs) this is super nasty. So in 1989, 15 years after Bill Finger's death, that's when Kane Kane published his autobiography that I read from. He finally expressed some regret in an interview. In those days, it was like one artist and he had his name over it. And the policy of DC in the comic books was, if you can't write it, obtain another writer but their names would never appear on the comic book in the finished version, so Bill never asked me for the byline, and I never volunteered. I guess my ego at that time, and I felt badly, really, when he died. Well, no kidding. (laughs) Good timing. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, so Batman... I guess guess when you think about how Siegel and Schuster were treated, not that I feel much sympathy. I mean, they signed the rights away to Superman, but, you know, you could see somebody like Kane being protective. I, you, Doggy you Dog World is all I'm saying. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he wasn't better than the water he swam in. Oh, man. No, he was not. So the Batman, it debuted in 1939. It was DC Detective Comics number 27, and it was a huge hit. Like Superman, he, he got his own comic book really soon after. And it's pretty widely known now that when he starts out, Batman is using a gun and killing people, which he would never do again. Except in you know, all the Batman, Batman movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a Batman but, movie where Batman doesn't kill somebody? Maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so in 1940, DC is like, okay, no more. No more guns, no more killing. And Batman in the comics has more or less remained that way. Of course, not in this movie. Not in Batman Returns. Not in Batman v Superman. Not in etc. But those guys, to be fair, you know, Burton, Snyder... They're basing their Batman on a darker conception from something we'll talk about later. Uh, I, I guess Nolan's Batman doesn't really kill people. I, I, I'm not going to kill you, but I, can, but I don't but have, have to save you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the moral high ground. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so in 19- the only dumb thing about the last third of that movie. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Thankful. In 1943, the first Batman serial airs with Lewis Wilson as Batman. And then 1949, you get the serial Batman and Robin. I've never seen these. Nathan maybe has looked at them. The comic series starts dark, but then it gets bright and sci-fi and crazy, and Batman starts having adventures with Superman and things like that. And then in the 1950s, the Batman comic is accused, very famously, of being gay. There's a famous book called (laughs) Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham, put out in 1954, and it argued that kids who read comics are going to imitate the crime in them And he took aim at Batman in particular by saying that Batman and Robin, their relationship had gay overtones. So, and this is the time, partly in response to Wortham's book, that the comic Code's authority is established. Yeah, this guy is the villain of any documentary or anything or book you read about comics. It's always like, (laughs) then the Puritan came along. And (laughs) And so the the Comics Code Authority is an industry self-censoring panel. All right, so the Batman series, it introduces female bat heroes, maybe to say, hey, Rob, Batman and Robin aren't gay. They, there's women bat people, too. So the stories get campier. They get really campy, and they, then they slant heavily towards sci-fi. By 1964, Batman's not that popular. DC gets this editor in to overcall the character. Goodbye, Space Adventures. Goodbye, Batwoman, or at least that Batwoman. 
Goodbye, Ace the Bat Hound. Fare thee well. <laughs> we <laughs> never knew thee. <laughs> we never knew thee. Hello, detective-ish stories again. So that's 1964. But then 1966, the Batman TV show comes out. And that is the campiest thing on the planet. And it's really popular. And then the comics are like, well, if camp's going to sell, let's go back to camp. And they go back to camp. Then the TV show's canceled a couple of years later. The comic loses popularity again. More guys are brought in to reset things again. And in 1969, I guess we begin to get the sort of thing we would recognize as classic Batman, whatever that is. Darker stuff. Kind of stuff that more naturally could become a movie like the one we're going to talk about today. And DC keeps doing that kind of Batman, a little more grounded, a little more serious, into the 1980s. And the fans like it a lot, but for whatever reason, it doesn't attract new fans. It doesn't improve sales, which is interesting. I didn't know Batman just treaded water sales-wise so much, and then it started to sink again. And meanwhile, of course, you have all these crummy cartoons from the late 60s into the mid-80s. You have the Batman Superman Hour, Hanna-Barbera's Super Friends. And I imagine those don't really help sell the comic book series that's trying to sell more, tell more serious stories, yeah, those are, those right? Suck. Yeah, and so those continue with the, with, with the dumb camp. The comics, meanwhile, are trying to do something different. <clears throat> and it's not until, ah, the famous Batman story that I, I was waiting to mention until now, in 1986, turns the financial tides. You might say that Batman returns to be a serious selling property. Okay, it's The Dark Knight Returns. If you've read it, you've read it as a graphic novel, probably. I read it many times. I used to own it until I was like, this is dumb. <laughs> I don't want to own this stupid thing. <laughs> Nathan, you want to say anything about The Dark Knight Returns? You can understand why it was so big. It is reactionary in a way that it no longer holds that much potency because everything that it's reacting against is dead. Like now we just have a dark, violent Batman and we've seen plenty of dark, violent Batman movies. So this one's like, look, the Joker, he's going on a shooting spree. He's breaking his own neck. It's dark, dude. And you're like, okay, I've seen that Joker, actually. It doesn't feel that revolutionary anymore. But you can certainly understand how mm-hmm. powerful it was to see this character brought into a sort of 80s nihilistic sort of full adult world. Yeah, and it's an older Batman. He's returning right. from being retired. So... It's kind of, it's immature, surface level, kind of flashy stuff, like macho. Yeah, um, it's it's very aggro. It's very red pill. It's very, you know, Joker is kind of trans or something. He's, yep. he's I don't remember exactly what he is, but there, you know, he's effeminate somehow. And He is, and the story's all about the propaganda of, oh, the Joker's been in prison for a while, but now we understand how to help him, and have self-esteem and we'll bring him back into society and he'll be fine and then of course the joker is going to take that opportunity to start murdering a bunch of people superman is a sellout working for the reagan or a very thinly Mm -hmm. veiled reagan administration as kind of a Batman beats him up and yeah batman (laughs) beats the crap out of him it's like it's high time clark you learned how to be a man yeah yeah yeah. that's the literal line in the bat cave (laughs) i loved that as a when i was reading it but it's all just very Uh, appealing to the teenage boy who thinks he's cool you know there could never really be a Superman. Superman's the dumbest character. And then you have Bruce Wayne <laughs> punching it. Bloody teeth of Superman flying across the panel and it's, stuff. It's, it's Aggro is the it's, word. It's, uh, it's, it's immature. Uh, it's immature. But anyway, I think that leads us pretty well into Tim Burton's Batman movie. So that was 1986. This is 1989. So I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me talk 
about the movie. The movie, again, that I am going to posit is arguably as important to why movies are the way they are as Jaws or Star Wars. Here's a quote, quote from Tim Burton, our director. I liked parts of it, but the whole movie is mainly boring to me. It's okay, but it was more of a cultural phenomenon than a great movie. So that's Tim Burton, and that is, <laughs> that is the criticism. That is what we'll decide whether we agree with it or not, but that is certainly what people say. So going into this movie, Batman as a property in the public imagination is still very much haunted, even given... Well, let's let's go back to the 1970s. So Batman is super as a conception is super haunted by pow and zap and bam and boom and you know the 1960s camp stuff. But one man, a hero, arose. His name was Michael Uslin, and he has a connection to your all alma mater, Jake, and our our hometown college, Indiana University. Oh, actually has a pretty important part to play in Batman lore and comic book lore. So Michael Uslin is this dude who loves the old dark Batman, but he's growing up when Batman 66 is at its height and verily he is troubled in spirit. He is unhappy with the campy tone of how everyone thinks of Batman. And Uslin is an undergrad at IU, our good friend, and then a grad student at the IU School of Law. And as a grad student, he proposes a course that takes an academic approach to comics and nobody had ever done, you know, now we have so many pop culture courses, all anything we can do to take money from young people. But yeah, that's right, folks. I said it, I went there. <laughs> so, but there's nothing like that at the time. And so he's like, let's do an, an academic approach to comics, looking at them through the lens of history, folklore, psychology, the literary value. And he wants it to be a three hour normal college credit, which is crazy. So he goes to the department of folklore and they sign off on it. And then he goes to the dean of college arts. And the dean is like, no way. I hate fun. I hate life. You're not doing a comic book thing. Ah. And Michael Uslan's like, dude, tell me the story of Moses. This is the, and so the guy tells him the story of Moses. And then he's like, okay, now tell me the story of Superman. The guy tells him the story of Superman. And the dean of the dean's heart melts as he realizes that he knows. It's a retelling of the. Yeah, he knows both those <laughs> stories. And that's because they're both. Folklore, they're both our, their generation's myths. Disclaimer, I don't actually believe that about the story of Moses, but I'm telling you the story the way Michael Uslan would tell it. And so the first accredited comic book course is born, and Uslan is a genius because what Uslan does is he calls local newspapers and he complains about his own course. He says, can you believe... Indiana University has a course in comics. Right, and the local newspapers are like, yeah, that's a good angle for a little human interest story and so they they get people to criticize the course and boy is that smart there's no such thing as bad publicity right and so this the thing ex explodes because a bunch of old fuddy-duddies are going after it and it's getting national I wonder if my professor did that same thing so he did that on purpose so i'm sorry so i i took a class at IU called Star Trek and Religion. It was the single best class I ever took. Who was the professor? But was professor the was Mary Jo Weaver. Hmm. And she was a religious studies professor. And the course was on, it was really about integrating philosophy. It was basically a course on propaganda. Right. Really. It was a course about how Roddenberry used Star Trek as a vehicle to package 
Marks or to package any number of other things. So we'd read Marks and then we'd watch an episode that was just like a repackaging of Marks. We'd read Freud and we'd have the Freud episode. And we'd like do that in class. It was really cool and a super fun class, but that class got written up in USA Today and other places in one of those sort of, can you believe these are the kinds of courses that get taught at, Mm -hmm. you know, our public, this is a sign of the downfall of our uh, public institutions. I was just like, man, yeah, there's a lot bad about the universities, but in my experience, that course was not one of them. That course was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I've said many times on this podcast, the media illiteracy that people, that kids today even have, even though they're in a swamp of visual media is insane. Like we should be teaching these things all the time. Yeah, that was like, it was the most innovative, smart, useful, helpful. And she was the coolest professor for that reason. Like she just easily the coolest professor because she like, she really did care. Like she really did care about students thinking or being critical thinkers. I remember too, in that class, she would assign, she, so we'd have the reading and discuss the reading. We'd watch the thing and then we'd have an essay every week. And it was supposed to be a three-page essay. And my first essay I turned in was a one-page essay. And then I just attached a note to it. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I couldn't, if I tried to write three pages, I would have just been filling space. So this is all I got. And I got an A plus on it. And she called me after class and she said, it's only a three-page essay because most people can't articulate their thoughts that clearly in that space of time. If you want to save me time, if you can get it down in a page, great. I don't care. I just care that you're able to articulate something intelligent about this. A-plus for Professor Weaver. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. like, man, super awesome. Super cool. I, yeah, I love, I love that woman. Well, I just think I would almost go so far as to say it is much more important for children to be able to analyze Star Trek than it is for them to be able to analyze, say, the Odyssey. But maybe that's a heretical thing to say. But hey, they're going to watch a lot more Star I mean, Star Trek's a dumb example, but they're going to watch a lot more superhero movies than they are going to be spending time reading the Odyssey. Anyway, this guy's class, of course blows up, gets national press coverage. Stan Lee calls him and says, thanks for finally giving us some validity as an industry. And he actually uses this to springboard his way more or less out of academia into the world of... An actual comic book career. Well, he actually gets hired by United Artists, the film company, and they buy Batman in the 70s. And this guy's working from the early 70s on to make a Batman movie. And his vision is that it be dark and moody, that it be Bob Kane, the original Bob Kane, 1940s stuff. But... Uh, he, this is before Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. It's before Dark Batman has any cultural cachet. Really, what most people know Batman as is the Adam West stuff. And so they're just, uh, you know, so the age old story. They are turned down by every studio until finally Warner Brothers in the late 70s has a success with Superman. So they're cool. They get it. They're like, okay, yeah, we want to get behind that. So in the, in the early, late 70s, they sign on to do a batman movie but then it takes forever to get it going and there's a lot of fun paths they almost went down joe dante of gremlins ivan reitman of ghostbusters almost were the directors there was a screenplay written for bill murray and eddie murphy to play batman and robin again the studio like only really remembers this as a comedic property so everybody's thinking Mm -hmm. so we almost got like the snarky bill murray batman which we can only Oh, man. Imagine. Mm. But finally, the studio gets tired of going around and around. Nobody can crack it. And they're just like, hey, we're go- Michael, we're going to drop this unless you can get something figured out. And then we're going towards the late 80s. Like, we've already spent 
a lot of money on this and we're not getting any closer to an actual Batman property. And so they're like, who's the guy? Who's the guy who can figure this out? And enter Tim Burton, which is strange. Yeah. So let me tell the sad story of a broken, rejected boy who somehow accidentally became a brand for sad, broken, rejection people and never seemed to work that hard on it and has a very diffident relationship. I don't know. Tim Burton's a weird guy. Have you guys ever seen him in interviews? No. no. Tim Burton is exactly what you would expect him to be. He looks like he's had his insomnia. His eyes are sort of ringed with black. He looks very goth, not because he's wearing makeup, but just because he doesn't look like he ever sees sunlight. He wears dark sunglasses kind of things. He doesn't make eye contact with the interviewer. And he just kind of mumbles these weird self-deprecating, rambling, okay, man, you know, kind of things. He's what you would want him to be, I guess. Like he's not, it would be disappointing, I think, if Tim Burton had it all put together. Mm-hmm. You kind of want Tim Burton to be his, a weird goth person. And so he is. So picture, if you will, a young boy standing alone in a cemetery. This is true. Perhaps he had a drawing pad, the... The only thing that gives him solace in a world he doesn't understand. The time, 1960s in sunny Burbank, California, which is the happy cornball entertainment center of the world at the time. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, all the game shows, everything, you know, filmed in beautiful Burbank, California. If you pay attention, you've heard that phrase mm-hmm. a million times. Burbank is right next to Hollywood. It's a 30-minute drive to Disneyland. It's just like the center of everything that's shallow and cheesy and faux happy and beautiful and youthful at the time. And little Tim Burton finds himself born into that world. His old man, Bill Burton, was a minor leaguer who now worked for Burbank Parks and Rec. His mom, Jean, owned a cat-themed gift shop. And Timothy did not get along with any of them, if you can imagine this. He felt alienated. He felt outside. His dad would send him out to play. And he would wander over to the cemetery that was right next to his house and walk around in there. And so that's where we find him as we join this story. He loved Edgar Allan Poe, Hammer Horror movies, Vincent Price movies, Roald Dahl, Dr. Seuss, all the things that, you would, that a kid like that would love. Somebody asked him as a kid what his dream job was. He says, I want to be the guy that wears the Godzilla suit. That's what he wanted to be. He aimed high. Ben and I went to a monster bash one time. Yeah. And we met a lot of Tim Burton's at that. We didn't actually meet them, but it was all either, it was like a monster bash for, and there was a whole reason we were there besides joy, but it was all either super 70s or 80s year old people who remembered like the 1950s fondly and like those Mm -hmm. cheesy old movies because they represented a period. Horror and sci fi in particular. Yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers type stuff. Or. It was like these young dudes in leather with gauged ears and people who identified with the monster iconography because they felt like outsiders and lived as outsiders mm-hmm. one way or another. So nose rings, black mascara, I mean, all the, just all that kind of stuff. And remember that Burbank is right outside of Walt Disney World and right near Disney Studios. So when in 1971, when Tim is 13 years old, he wanders over to Disney, walks in, asks what he has to do to be an animator there. And the random receptionist is like, well, kid, you should probably be in school right now. And Tim's like, okay, I guess I can't do it because he hates school. Um, Very maladjusted child. So 
he but he decides he's going to do it. He's going to become a Disney animator. So he writes a children's book called The Great Zig and illustrates it himself and submits it to Disney. And they do not accept it, but he actually gets a very encouraging letter back, which I just want to read, actually, because I think it's nice. It's from an editor at Walt Disney Productions. Dear Tim, here are some brief impressions of your book, The Great Zig. Story. The story is simple enough for young audiences, age four to six, cute, and shows a grasp of the language much better than I would expect from one of today's high school students, despite occasional lapses in grammar and spelling. It may, however, be too derivative of the Seuss works to be marketable. I just don't know, but I definitely enjoyed reading it. Art. Considering that you suffer from a lack of the proper tools and materials, the art is very good. The characters are charming and imaginative and have sufficient variety to sustain interest. Your layout is also good. It shows great variety in point of view. Consequently, I not only enjoyed reading about the great Zig, but I got to chuckle watching him too. I hope my comments please you. Thank you for the opportunity to read the great Zig. Keep up the good work and good luck. Very truly yours. T. Jeanette Kroger. Editor. Oh, that's awfully sweet. Yeah. Really I mean, sweet. It's just, we're not celebrities. We're, we do not work for Walt Disney. Sometimes we get letters or submissions or things from people just doing the work that we do. And it, this reminds me to be kind to those people because you never know who's going to be the next Tim Burton, I guess. So I just think it's cool that person. It's cool to be Jeanette Kruger and realize you uh, encouraged someone who became, became somebody. So Tim does... And you really do have a part in their story because of it. Right, exactly. Like it's important. That kind of thing really matters to a kid. Yeah. I mean, I love, I started going to the gym a couple of years ago and it's nice how many people come up and say, you're doing a good job or you look see, great. see some fat guy at the gym and they're like, I will encourage yeah. him. Yeah, it's um, it's a really sweet thing about gym culture that people they have their misconceptions or their ideas, but that's it's a really common thing. I love it. Yeah, it's great. So so Cal Arts is founded by the Disney family, California Art School, right after Walt's death, because there's no, as I've talked about before on this podcast, there's no pipeline. Disney Disney did not leave a legacy of a good pipeline for animators to take over from the original crop. And so they really don't have I think we talked about it in the Don Bluth American Tale episode. They don't have people coming up in disney that know what they're doing and so roy disney and the family founds a school cal arts and tim gets to go there and tim burton says it's it was a great experience for him actually because unlike film school where you're running around making industry connections in an art school you're actually learning cinematic you're learning more about making movies actually than you probably will in the big film schools because you're learning about things like layout and design and visual strategy and stuff like that. And Tim Burton is part of a group of young rebels, kind of the brat pack of the rising animation, guys like Brad Bird, John Lasseter, Henry Selleck, who did Nightmare and Coraline and stuff like that. Like all the big names from animation are there. And there are all these kind of rebellious young men who are on fire to do something different. They love the actual legacy of animation from old school Disney. And they're all kind of disgusted with the Fox and the Hound-ish school of what's happening now and so they're just like hitting disney like a cannonball and most of them aren't going to immediately find their way in but eventually they will become the titans of the next generation so tim burton is actually hired becomes a part of a new crop of disney animators working on the fox and the hound and immediately fits in as raymond chandler said like like a, a tarantula on an angel food cake and I love the image of Tim Burton trying to work on the fox and the hound. Here's a quote. I couldn't draw those four-legged Disney foxes. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't even fake the Disney style. Mine looked like roadkills, he said. I had an office at Disney, and I could look out the window and see the hospital where I was born, St. Joseph's, the cemetery where my grandfather is buried. It was like the Bermuda Tri Triangle. 
I was working on the Fox and the Hound and it was pretty obvious quickly that I was not cut out for it. It was like, oh man, I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it. At Disney, I almost went insane. I don't ever want to get that close to the certain kind of feeling that I had. I don't want to get that close again. I was just not Disney material. I just could not draw cute foxes for the life of me. I couldn't do it. I tried. I tried and tried. The unholy alliance of animation is that you're called upon to be an artist, but on the other hand, you're called upon to be a zombie factory worker. And for me, I could not integrate the two. Also, at the time, they were making the kind of bad word movies and it took them five or six years to make a movie. That's the cold hard fact. Do you want to spend six years of your life working on the fox and the hound? There's a soul searching moment where the answer is pretty clear. So I just love the idea of Tim Burton on the factory assembly line for Fox and the Hound and just going insane and all his drawings coming out like Tim Burton drawings. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts sleeping for 10 hours. He learns to sleep while holding a pencil. He, there's stories of him hiding in a coat closet for hours or literally hiding under his desk so that he won't have to do more Fox and the Hound stuff. But the thing is, he's really obviously a bad fit for Fox in the Town, but he's also really obviously talented. And they want Disney wants to not just fire him. They want to use him. They want to find a, a fit for fit. him. So they put him on the Black Cauldron movie, which is another Disney clunker from the time, but it feels like maybe a good fit for Burton. And they have him doing designs. And that doesn't really work either. His designs are too far out for them to want to use on the Black Cauldron. And at the same time, though, a producer still believes in, in him and gives him the funds to make a little animated short, which you can find on YouTube called Vincent featuring Vincent Price. And it's about, it's very autobiographical. It's about a little boy who wishes that he was Vincent Price. And he also gets to make a little animated short called Frankenweenie, which later became a big animated thing once a few years ago. Um, and then the live action short is the way that I've seen it. Yeah. an animated, like a claymation kind oh. of thing. Yeah. Not cart, not drawing animation, but then they fire him because finally they cannot make it work with Tim Burton. He is a bad fit for Disney. But Paul Rubens, the performer of Pee Wee Herman, also went to CalArts. He was another one of that generation of angry young men there with Lassiter and Bird and all that. And he has got a job making Pee Wee Herman and making the Pee Wee Herman movie. And Paul Rubin sees Vincent and Frankie and Weenie, and he's like, this is the perfect person to be the director of my live-action Pee-wee movie. And it's not like a huge, there's not a lot writing on Pee-wee, so they just let Tim Burton do that. And then it's a big hit. And that basically brings us up to Batman. So you got this weird guy that could not fit in anywhere in his life, bombed out of Disney, but everybody sees that he's really talented. And then he does this Pee Wee Herman movie, which is inventive and fun and colorful. And I think still a good movie. I haven't seen it for a, a long time. But the person who is, there's an executive. Her name is Bonnie Lee. Paul Rubens works for her. Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman guy. Uh, Tim Burton also works for her. Sam Harris also works for her, who is a Warner Brothers staff writer who happens to be working on the latest attempt to crack Batman when the studio is just dictated, like, you got to crack this or we're going to sell it off and be done with it. And so she just, this random, she just puts these two people together. She's like, let's put Tim together with Sam, see if they can crack Batman. And the studio is like, that's okay. But Tim Burton's working on another movie. It's called Beetlejuice. Let's see what Beetlejuice does before we really pull the trigger on 
Tim being our Batman guy. And Tim, interestingly, even though he's really seeped in art and stuff, has no relationship with comic books. He loves the image, the iconography of Batman and the Joker, but he's never been a comic book fan is because, quote, I could never tell what box I was supposed to read. That's why I loved The Killing Joke, because for the first time, I could tell which one to read. It's my favorite. It's the first comic book I've ever read. That's another famous, like, dark, new 80s Batman thing, Alan Moore. And so Tim Burton loves the idea of Batman. He really identifies with the split personality, the hidden person. He can relate to that, a light side, a dark side. That he really keys into for Batman and Joker. But he doesn't have much of a relationship with the character besides an, a piece of iconography. He's got, I don't know if he's full-on dyslexic, but he cannot read comic books. Finds them confusing. So in any case, the studio's waiting. Beetlejuice is another moderate hit. And they're like, okay, we're going to entrust this young, late 20s, early 30-somethings guy with Batman. And so Tim Burton begins to develop Batman. Tim Burton really wants Joker to be the one that kills Batman's parents. He loves that whole you created me, I created you thing. Most comic book fans hate that. I kind of hate it. I don't think it's this movie at its finest. But Tim Burton doesn't care about any of the actual Batman lore. He just cares about what makes Batman interesting to him. And so they're really looking to try and find psychology. The assumption is that they're going to include Robin because everybody knows Robin at this point from the thing. But Tim Burton's like, he's not interested in Robin. So the time comes to actually cast the film. And Tim has just had a great experience working with Michael Keaton in Beetlejuice. And he's like, let's get Keaton. And of course, everybody's buzzing about who's going to play Batman. And there's actually an article you can find that appeared on the front of the Wall Street Journal that says, Batman is Mr. Mom, like as a headline on the front, and everybody's making fun of it. But Burton is just like, I know Keaton can do it. He's got crazy eyes. He can play a crazy person. He's got a darkness. Like, he believes in him. And Keaton doesn't really understand why Burton would want him for Batman, but he trusts Burton. They have a good relationship. The other thing that's going on is that the whole world already assumes, well, obviously, you have to get Jack Nicholson for the Joker. Like, that's just a no-brainer. This man was born to the only question is he too perfect is it too on the nose and would he actually want to play role like that and there's another there's a funny story where tim burton has to go and convince jack nicholson and jack nicholson's like let's ride horses and so tim burton ends up (laughs) on a horse (laughs) i I think tim tim burton told his producing friend you know i don't ride and he's like you do today jack nicholson wants to go horseback riding for whatever reason (laughs) so poor tim burton because he's the joker (laughs) because he's the joker And Jack Nicholson says, I feel very strongly that this should not be a let's brighten it up for the kids kind of thing. And Tim Burton says, you're speaking my language. And they hit it off. And Tim Burton manages to not fall off a horse and kill himself. But this is very much the studio keying into what for them worked for Superman, which is the whole concept of get Brando, get Gene Hackman, get Mm -hmm. a big name. Casting is hype. Casting is a way to sell your movie, actually. Cast the right actor and you can actually use that to advertise the film. And Jack Nicholson takes it really seriously. A quote from him, I took it more seriously than anybody in the world. My ear experience told me from working for an audience of children, the more you scare them, the more they like it. The worse you are, the better. So Jack Nicholson is just keyed into this is for kids and kids want me to be, and therefore I should be as nasty as possible, which is an interesting way to interesting look at it. But point of view. He's not wrong. I don't think he's totally wrong. Jack, Jack Nicholson gets a lot of money, especially on the back end his deal he demanded all his shots be shot in a three-week block 
but the schedule lapsed into 106 days. He reduced his standard 10 million fee to 6 million in exchange for a cut of the film's earnings, including associated merchandise. Yep, genius. Which led to remuneration in excess of $50 million, maybe as much as 90. We don't really know. So he gets paid so many thousands of dollars for the movie. Every day the movie goes over schedule and it goes way over schedule. And then he gets a cut of merch and a cut of the movie itself. And Jack Nicholson made a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. I've watched how Star Wars goes, and I think that Batman can do that. Yeah, Jack Nicholson's not stupid. He's... Sean Young, you may remember her as the replicant love interest from mm-hmm. Blade Runner, was cast as... Spoilers. Uh, Kim, sorry. Actually, no. Is really. it a, I thought it's she, not, she was a replicant. No, no. She was cast as Vicki Vale. She fell off a horse and broke her leg. And so she was an up-and-comer who never really upped and came because she missed her big shot. And she actually... The funny story about her is she was so desperate to get her big shot again that she dressed up in a cat suit when they were doing Batman returns and went into the casting office and says, Hey, why don't you cast me as a uh, cat And they were like, don't make us call the police. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Kim Basinger basically has to hop on a plane and come do the part. She's just a hot young thing at the time. And they're like, Hey, we need a hot young thing. Are you available right now? Like right now in a week. And so she just, doesn't even know what she's doing, just shows up to be in this boys club with Nicholson and Keaton and all these sweaty dudes. And I think that it helps to know that. They shoot in Pinewood Studios, the famous James Bond studio, big studio in London. Anton First is the wonderful production designer. Tim Burton wants to set it in an alternate universe, New York. Uh, so we get a combo of real new 80s New York, German expressionism, art deco, one of their keys was, let's imagine New York as imagined by a foreigner. What do people imagine when they imagine New York? I don't know that this is actually what people imagine when they imagine New York, but it's what Tim Burton and Anton first imagine when they imagine New York. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The script is not done when they start shooting, as is true for many of these movies. There's actually a writer's strike, much like there is now. There's a big writer's strike, and so Sam Harris can't keep him, working. Him? Sam Ham. Sam Ham. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Can't keep working on the movie. And a lot of the dumb things you can watch, you can watch interviews with, with Sam Ham where he's like, I did not have Alfred bring Vicky into the Batcave without permission. Like, I do not. I take, they did that after I was gone. There's any number of dumb things like that. Also, the, the whole parents joker was the shooter of the parents thing. Is not Sam, Sam Ham has spent decades being berated by fans <laughs> for doing those two stupid things like Alfred should have been fired, uh, but not his fault. So let the record show. Um, there's weird things like the producer of uh, uh, one of the pr- producers of the movie goes to see Phantom of the Opera, the play with Jack Nicholson. And they're like, hey, it would be cool if this movie ended in a big gothic tower. And he's like, cool, start building that tower. Doesn't even talk to Tim Burton. And so Tim Burton suddenly finds out that they've spent $100,000 building a giant gothic tower for the climax that's not even in the script. And they just have to come up with a random gothic tower climax, which I think you can maybe kind of feel a little bit in the movie. Folks, I've got breaking news. Ben has sent me a correction here. It turns out Frankie we- Frank and Weenie is li- a live action like 30 minutes short, right, Ben? Yes, sir. Okay, so, man, really blew our credibility on that one. 
One star reviews. Let's talk about Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman was the lead singer for a new wave band called Oingo Boingo. Very artsy fartsy kind of new wave guy. And he did without without prior film scoring work. He Tim Burton just liked him and hired him for the first two Tim Burton movies. And he wrote scores for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and for Beetlejuice. But he had never done anything on this scale. Now, the producers were not actually hoping for a big orchestral score. The producers were hoping for another Top Gun score because that was the big selling soundtrack at the time. So they're like, let's get Prince, let's get Michael Jackson, let's have a bunch of people write songs, and then we'll have a little score in between it, which sounds so lame for a Batman movie. But Elfman doesn't even know if he's going to be able to get the, keep this job. He just knows he has to come up with something. And Elfman doesn't even know how to orchestrate. He gets his bandmates to help him orchestrate the music. But the story is that Elfman and Burton go in to present the music to the suits. The suits are all really skeptical. And Danny Elfman is such not a performer in the room with the suits kind of guy that he starts playing the love theme and all this different stuff. And the suits are just like, what are you? And Tim Burton, not Mr. Social Skills, but he has the wherewithal to come up and kind of whisper, play the stupid Batman march, play the march. And so the suits are like, all right, let's fire this guy. And then Danny Elfman plays the Batman march. And at the beginning of the Batman march, they're thinking about letting him go. By the end of it, they're all like, yes, we get it. This is great. You just elevated our movie a couple notches. Thank you. And so begins a long and prosperous career for Danny Elfman. But the only other really thing to say about this movie is to say why it is the most important movie from Jaws since Jaws and and in terms of marketing and all that. This really is the beginning of the true modern blockbuster era where what you want is for the movie. As one executive said, you want an original that plays like a sequel. You want a movie with such hype, such advertising. It's, it's, It's such a brand name that the movie itself does not actually matter and through the 80s we have a lot of sequels we've got the indiana jones sequels we've got blockbusters like ghostbusters and stuff always the movie mattered <laughs> when it comes to batman what they discover is what really matters is the logo what really matters is the merchandise we can take an intellectual property that people like and we can whip up such excitement just with the right sort of brand management. And they designed this genius, genius logo. And the logo was such a big deal at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was such, and and you saw the logo everywhere and it'd be on t-shirts and it it kind of. All the cups at McDonald's and all the, I had a, I had a Batman piggy bank with the logo on it. Like it was actually like, the torso of Michael Keaton in the bat suit, but yeah, had the great big yeah. logo on it. Like they, they had everything. And it's just genius. I don't know that we get much advertising that's even this good because it tells you everything and it tells you nothing. And the original poster, if you remember, is just that logo. And then it says yep. Nicholson Keaton Batman yeah. logo. Yeah. And that's enough to make people crazy for the, like we're those two actors. And then this great piece of pop iconography, just this bat logo. And it's kind of one of those things where when people weren't used to it, they'd be like, is that a mouth? Is that? A-? And then they see it like a magic eye. It's the Batman logo. 
And so bootleg merchandise is flying. Like they cannot keep these, the action figures and the shirts. Like everybody's crazy for this movie. The trailer gets attached to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if I'm not mistaken. And they, Mm -hmm. the studio leaks that the trailer is going to premiere with that movie. And people are showing up just to see the trailer. And it's a bad trailer. It doesn't have any music. It's obviously hastily thrown together. Like they realized this wave of hype was going. They're like, we have to get a trailer out now. And so they just throw some stuff together. It's no music. You just, you see Nicholson, you see Keaton, you see some shots. Uh, But the trailer gets a standing ovation from people. Like people are crazy. People are breaking into bus stations to steal the poster, um, the toy, the blitz of toys and stuff. Like it's, and and nobody's actually seen the movie. Nobody knows if the movie is going to be good. They're just excited about its existence. Um, Excited about being excited about something. Yeah, they're excited about being excited. That's a good way to put it. And, Jack Nicholson is at the Oscars and he sees Jack Vellante, the head of the MPAA, a very famous person in Tinseltown. And Jack Nicholson does his little bit of guerrilla marketing. He goes up to Jack and says, listen, Jack, there's no top on this Batman movie. There's no top to what this thing's going to do. And by the end of that, he says that like during a bathroom break early in the Oscars, by the end of the Oscars, everybody's it's getting back to Jack Nicholson. Like there's no top on this thing. And so they're telling everybody how big it is. And how exciting it is and they're selling the iconography they're selling the trailer that in and of itself is so much what we get now you know you get the mm-hmm. trailer for the trailer and the action figures that we can all spec there's a, there's a whole industry and a whole internet industry that's sprung up around people simply speculating about the hype the hype is its own form of entertainment now it well the, in the hype itself people have been so burned by it that nobody believes any of it anymore too yeah it's the tragic thing and so for all the hype that the flash got nobody went and saw it right and he got a ton of hype. Yeah. The hype was really exciting, and I didn't go see it. What I think we've actually circled back around to, and the studios need to catch up with this, is word of mouth. I think that That's right. a slow release. I mean, the thing that everybody's talking about the week that we're recording this is that Insidious Part 3, little horror movie film that cost $15 million. Scariest movie of the summer. Not great. I think I, think I saw the first Insidious. It's not that great. I'm sure the third one's not that great, but it's a little Patrick Wilson horror movie, and it beat... Indiana Jones has already made its money back. Indiana Jones, meanwhile, spent $400 million and will never make its money back. And it's like, if studios can rediscover the joy of a mid-budget word-of-mouth hit, um, that's really how the, some studio is going to get smart about that. Mm-hmm. And the days, the thing that this Batman movie, along with Jaws and things like that, created, the whole, like, we're going to manufacture a giant blockbuster, we're going to spend all the money, but then we're also going to make all the money, the, the time on that, has run out. I'm sure there are still IPs and property. You know, if we it's were back impossible. in- Yeah. If Tom Cruise's name is on it, it's going to happen. Yeah. But Tom Cruise is one of maybe one stars that can do that mm-hmm. right I mean, now. Christopher Nolan can't do it. I don't, you don't know that Oppenheimer is going to- I'll be very curious to see if Oppenheimer can be carried on the brand and, and a decent trailer campaign. But uh, it's not a Batman movie. It's not a sci-fi movie. It's just the main selling point it has is Nolan. And it'll be fascinating to see how that movie- does so these days we get mega release firestorm big quick money let's open as high as possible as opposed to let's build any word of mouth and i think it's been overall pretty negative for the industry it's an easy thing to complain about but what are you going to do so that is a legacy of batman its influence on superhero movies is that i think superhero world building becomes a thing for many years like we don't actually accept that these heroes could just exist in our world, so you have to build out a world for them to 
a stylized world. A style, you have to stylize a little fit. bit, yeah. Whether it's a Blade or Batman or many other things from the era, it really is. I mean, even the Nolan movies are a little bit like that. It's a somewhat stylized Chicago. Well, but, you, so you hate it, and it creates space for Nolan or certain things about the MCU. But man, it's super fun. Oh no, no, it's cool here. I mean, I think it is mm-hmm. what felt refreshing about Iron Man. It is people forget how just how refreshing Iron Man was. And one of the things is Iron Man seems to just exist more or less in our world, our mm-hmm. world, and that's that felt really fun at the time. Yep. And Marvel's had a difficult road row to hoe and a road to hoe what is it saying? road to hoe road to hoe in terms of maintaining that balance and i think a lot of our favorite movies are the ones that actually like guardians that do just live in their own stylized universe but well that's guardians is a great contrast and james gunn is a great contrast for this because part of what was fun about that guardians movie is hey an artist with a sense of visual style and then you go and you watch this movie and you're like, wait a minute. Yep. The, <laughs> an, art, an actual artist with an actual sense of an actual visual style and not just a little bit of water in the desert. Yep. And no, are, been, are you saying you don't think Gunn is that? I know Gunn is that, but he is not that on the level that this movie is. I don't think he is. I mean, I'd say Gunn is a, I don't know. Gunn is a better better writer yeah no it's a better movies better movies better writer i'm not saying that this is a better movie than the guardians movies i'm just saying that in terms of a built out aesthetic every shot feels composed every scene all the sets everything just feels really built out and consistent and a part of gun does that and he'll have each world that he'll go to in a guardians movie is got its own shtick or whatever and it it's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like, also doing 12 worlds of movie, whereas Tim Burton yeah. gets to go deep on one. Right. And that's all. It just feels like, it just feels like a one world that has some real depth mm-hmm. to it. Feels lived in and feels fun and thought out and visualized scene to scene and shot for shot. Yeah, for sure. Well, we should give our point of view on this film. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view new fantastic point of view good is a point of view anyway oh it sounds like you guys really liked this movie i was very surprised by how much i enjoyed watching it i think of this movie as a movie that is compelling but not fun and i put it on thinking last night thinking i'll knock out some of the time And then I'll come back and finish it up on my iPad this morning, you know, whatever. Like, I just didn't care. I thought it was going to be a waste of time. And I put it on, I watched it to the end, and I really just had a lot of fun with it. And part of the fun I had with it was just the sense that here is a guy trying to make a... It just felt so cared about as a movie in and of itself. And it's got its problems from a story or structure standpoint, but... It doesn't have any problems visually. It doesn't have any problems, many problems character-wise. And the performances are amazing. I've forgotten how electric and compelling Jack Nicholson is in this movie. Because you think everybody has this idea or had the idea of Jack Nicholson's performance can never be topped. That Heath Ledger does what Heath Ledger does. And everybody thinks Heath Ledger will just clearly supplant Nicholson. Nicholson, so why ever go back and revisit it? And then you go back and revisit it with as much distance as I guess I've had. And it's like, man, the dude was awesome. Like he like sold out. He gave a killer performance, top to bottom, 
every scene was he was just popping. I like how often it feels like Tim Burton just left the camera rolling and Jack Nicholson just uh, usually he walks off camera chuck laughing uproariously to himself or doing some extra little shtick and it's like they got their money's worth. They got their they money's got worth their of money's Nicholson. Worth out of him. It, he and so the combination of the gothic and the art deco visualization, the composition of all the shots, all the little like yeah, there's not action but Every time we see Batman in a scene, he's going to have some kind of like shadowy icon iconography, like a comic book panel type mm-hmm. of a shot mm-hmm. that's going to feel ominous and cool. And I just, it did so many, so, so much of that sort of thing that I was just like, I just really enjoyed it. And I had a lot of fun with Keaton thinking he wasn't as gross as I, in this movie, as I imagined. And Nicholson just being good and... The vibe of it all, I just had a lot of fun. So yeah, I agree with that. It's a good, it's a good vibe movie. It's a good vibe movie. I've got some thoughts that I'll get to. But uh, Ben, what's your? Yeah, I like the vibe more this time than I ever have. Composition and all the care that Burton takes with every shot and every scene. I definitely part of it. It was fun. It was fun to watch it with my wife for an hour and fifteen minutes. And when she left, it's I was like, "Stop being as fun." It did because it wasn't. Sh- I, there's something about sharing. Yeah. The little, all it is, the little, it is. I have, little I have often thought, I, I don't make us do this because I think sometimes we, for what, for whatever different reasons we might not want to, but I, I always think the real baggage that matters is, did you watch this with your wife or your kids and what mm-hmm. did they think of it? Cause that yeah. makes such a difference to yeah. your experience. It yeah. really does. Um, so yeah. Well, I had forgotten how much of this movie, by the way, just like line for line lives in my head, yeah. but I watched it with Amanda and with Peter. Peter's 15. I kind of wish I would have watched it with Ian, but I was afraid to watch it with Ian because I just... Man, that's right on the line. It's on the line. He probably would have gotten a big kick out of it, though. I I want to come back to it with him at some point because I think that Peter last night and this morning had not, didn't really have anything to say about it, and that's kind of what I expected. Um, but... Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think it... It's always kind of fallen apart the the more it goes. Once you get into the second, once you get into the climactic stuff, they stop trying to make things make plot sense or make even the physical reality of what's happening make any kind of logistical sense. And that just shows up in so many ways. It just becomes more like, well, Gotham, we've established, is a visual world. And in this visual world, we're going to start creating our own rules of yeah. what's physically possible, why anyone would do a thing why things would unfold that way, why after Joker falls, suddenly he's in a position where he can grab the legs of right. Like things that make absolutely no sense, but they make sense iconographically. They make sense visually right. and design-wise, but they make no sense story-wise, even moment to yeah. moment. There's all and, kinds uh, of things like that. Oh, yeah. Joker's going to take her up to the top of this tower right. and wait for the helicopter. He's going to radio the helicopter and there's already at the top of the cubicle, and then we get to the top of it. There's like goons, and then suddenly there are all these goons that Batman can take out with one punch. There's one guy that he's going to have an extended fight sequence with because he's super tough for some reason. Yep. Yeah. Well, that is actually my big problem with this movie, and I think it does make a big difference that I've caught up with this movie a lot. So some of the things that I think I would have been delighted by, like just Jack Nicholson going for broke and stuff, I've had more thoroughly digested over the years maybe than you guys have, certainly than Jake has at the very least. But 
I think this movie fails the basic structural test that we've talked about before. Uh, I think a it's in a screenwriting book, but the most famous version of it is one that uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park have a little video online where they talk about it at a conference or something like that. And they say, your script, the, the, in between your sins, there should always be a but or therefore. He does this, therefore she does this. But this character does this. That's how you create compelling drama is you have strong causality. When a script gets boring or weird, it's, and then if you can put and in between your scenes, then you have failed. If you can put but or therefore, then you have succeeded. This movie, everything's loosely connected. There's some therefores and buts, but there's a lot of stuff, especially in the middle section that just feels like, and then the Joker does this, and then Batman does that, and then this thing, and then he shows up here, and then there's not a real strong structural causality to what happens. And that's a snooty way maybe of saying it. But I think if the movie does drag a little bit or not quite work for me, it's because it just kind of feels like a grab bag of admittedly had in mind that that were cool, like the museum scene or whatever. Yeah. The museum scene is a good example. The Joker shows up, I guess. And then Batman shows up, I guess. And then he takes Vicky back to her cave and there's this awesome, like getting to the cave thing. And then he just brought her there so that she could solve this middle act plot problem of the chemical thing that we're just going to kind of forget about. There's just, there's not a real strong sort of sense of narrative momentum. And I think this movie would be more successful as an entertainment if there was. The individual scenes are almost all fun and good. And it's a good vibe movie, a good hang movie, a good just you like living in Tim Burton's world. Uh, I don't, I'm not like a big physical media guy, but I got the 4K for this one. Um, and it was worth it. Like it was fun to just be enveloped in the highest definition version of this Gotham city. And I like all the characters discovering Batman. I like Knox. I like Vicky as far as she goes. Like there's no individual scene that I could flip past on TV and not say that's a great scene and a great movie. But it, it's all sort of, this is a common problem with Tim Burton movies, by the way, he just yeah. doesn't care about story. Um, it's, it's also, also a common problem in, I think, in a lot of the superhero genre pieces I think that's in, true. in general. And I think Nolan has this problem and people oh, don't man. recognize yeah. it or don't pay attention unless they've... I, like If you actually go back and revisit Dark Knight, it is just a collection of scenes strung together with one philosophy, which is momentum, momentum, momentum. Just keep pushing through it. Bluff, bluff, bluff. But he does, I will say that I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I also think the fact that he bluffs momentum helps. Like he he makes it feel even if it's just the music going it makes you feel like you're moving in a way that like the Burton movie doesn't feel like it's moving. It just feels kind of I guess stationary. I guess what covered it for me this go around was just how visually arresting it was. Right. And I don't want to take that away from you at all. Like it's a fun movie. To just, it, there's a reason that I've actually watched this movie so many times. I keep coming back to it. I, f- I find myself drawn to it because there's so much here that is fun and that is inventive and cool. And you do just kind of want to live there. Well, in it's also it, it's not just composed and visually arresting. It's also really it's also very written too. Where yep. the dialogue pops, yes. like the jokes are coming. The jokes are going to be both verbal and visual. There are so many ideas that are just coming at you a mile a minute where it's like, yeah, okay, so there's not like 
the pace is slow, maybe from a, you know, and kind of a structural mess from a story narrative standpoint. But then you've got such rich writing and visual storytelling that it's just like, not, not many movies have, are throwing that much at you to digest. It's just so simple, so monotone, so... Especially now. I mean, yeah, it's just oh, like, yeah. it's everything's so monochromatic that in lowest common denominator, especially in a genre film or, or franchise filmmaking, yeah. and it's just like, it's just like, there's nothing to chew on. There's nothing mentally or artistically stimulating. There's nothing to like care about. Um, and they don't have much story anyway either. And so it's like, I was not only able to forget, it's not like I didn't see the narrative problems or whatever, but I was, it was very easy to overlook and forgive. I think that if I were to turn around and watch it again in the next five years, I'd be bored by it. I think you probably would be. This is, this is exactly what's happened to me. I watched but, it a few years ago. I liked it. It's like every other time. Like if I'd watched, if you'd caught me on a different time, I would have had the same response. Oh, this is actually a lot cooler than I remembered. But Well, but, and it, the two, two types of contrast that are contexts that are important. One is who you watch it with and the other is what else you've been watching yeah and man we've been watching a lot of clunkers a lot of trash movies and a lot of movies that just don't swing for anything that don't try that don't yeah. aren't ambitious in their storytelling and this movie is whether it works or not i think i have one other big picture criticism i want to make this movie has a lame conception of the joker i like jack nicholson's performance he does great he's so much fun he papers over a lot of what's dumb but the basic idea of he was a gangster and a psychopath who became a different kind of gangster and a psychopath is so lame. We all accept it, I guess, because we grow up with it, but this is the worst, just in terms of the overall idea of the Joker, for my money, Jack Napier as the pre-Joker figure, it's just, it, it doesn't give the character anywhere to go. There's no actual development for this character. He's a psychopath who becomes a slightly more colorful psychopath. That's not all that interesting and for all that the movie wants to play with you made me and i made you eh, batman yeah joker made batman but batman was just kind of standing there when joker got made if anything he tried to save him overall i think that'd be the only other maybe that's me just being too much of a nerd or something but i, I didn't mind it this time i didn't mind it because what i felt like is jack napier yeah he's a psychopath but he's smart right he wants to actually construct something like have have the best gangster life for himself. Yeah, and he's he can be a psychopath doing it. Yeah, he's biding his time. He's putting together a life for himself. He's putting That's what it feels like. He's putting he's trying to play chess. And then he gets stabbed in the back. And he's playing Calvin Ball. And now he's <laughs> Yeah, now he's playing Calvin Ball. Yeah, he's just going to like, That's fair. That's a good, that's a good defense. I I wish he was into art or something. I wish there was a little His bit more. His profile said it was. Yeah, 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 I yeah know. but that's just written. Or, or yeah. into chemicals yeah. in a way that, like, I wish there was more before and after I, sort I, of. I agree with that. This is why he went bad in this particular way. It's not just because he got a certain look. It's because he, it's because of things, there were seeds that were already there. Yep. I think the writing agree. could have done more big picture stuff like that. And that's where it feels like the screenplay just didn't get those extra drafts. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say if you wanted to try to defend it, he was a, the setup is he's a narcissist who is very enamored with his own appearance. Right. And so much of how he composes his chess game is about how he looks and how he doesn't look, how he's like where he wants to be seen and where he doesn't want to be seen. 
And so nobody knows Jack Napier is even a guy who exists and that's how he liked it. But he's also like, he's, you know, you look great. I didn't ask, you right. know, <laughs> like this is all of that. Now his face is jacked up. And so he's going to go out and vie for attention. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's almost there. It, it's it, almost there, but yeah. it's it, it's just I, I'm reaching. I'm You're just trying. I'm just trying to. Yeah. Well, then I, Ben said like there's things like him pulling them off the roof that almost feel. What'd you say? Like it's, it's, I don't it know doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Batman throws him off the roof, and the next thing you know, you get a jump scare of him grabbing and pulling. Yeah. Them what both is off. he standing on? And and how did he pull them off so that they were able to hang on to it? I mean, none of it makes any sense visually or spatially. What Batman yeah. Returns, I think, does is it's like this movie's kind of caught between a certain adherence to realism and but then right. it also wants to just be a Tim Burton fairy tale. What Returns gets an opportunity to do is just go full crazy fairy tale. And so there's all kinds of things like that, but they well, don't matter well, because well, in that sense it's almost it does feel comic book because it's like you can have, you know, panel, 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 panel. That's right. And then you know, you leave it to your reader to, to, you fill, know, fill, fill, fill the gaps fill the of gaps. how the mechanics actually work. We were leaving it to the filmmaker to fill in the gaps, <laughs> right. and he was and like, "I, I don't actually care about forget it, forget it now." <laughs> 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 or I did for the first half of the movie, but I just this they built this dumb cathedral, so now I forget it. <laughs> we just got to finish the movie, guys. Yeah, that's, that's and, kind uh, of how it feels. And have a use for this hundred thousand dollar cathedral. Oh man. Well, what what happens in Returns is actually as he just goes straight for fairy tale. Actually, he achieves a kind of the physical logistics actually are much more careful. The mm. action's much more careful. And Batman Returns operates just as a it has a very clear emotional arc. Mm. Plot wise, you could say it's still just as dumb or poorly constructed as Batman, but it doesn't matter because he's tapped into the emotional arc so well. Yeah, you that, really, it, that it just rides it. it at least. It's, Maybe I'll speak for myself. I feel things in returns that I that this movie does not. This movie is more of a fun bobble. It's like you're not really feeling much for Keaton, or I'm not, or for no. Nicholson, or no. anybody. No, certainly not for Vicky Vale. I mean, she's. No, um, but Batman and his toys are cool. They're really cool. <laughs> well, and I suppose we should just talk through it. But there are some. There is. There are some operatic highs in this movie, like when he is taking her to the Batman, the Batcave, and mm-hmm. Alfred's yeah. music just goes crazy, and it's just full sort of like oh yeah stuff that only movies can do in sort of s- terms of just connecting you to some kind of primal Batman feeling. F- Flying there, and she's trying to look at him, and he hits the light, and yeah, and the music is just uh, this is yeah. I, I, like every this score is crazy, fat and stupid nerd. I've I owned this soundtrack uh own in the present tense yes. Nathan, for me <laughs> well i always think of Shaun of the dead when they're throwing records at, uh, <laughs> at <a> zombie. <laughs> zombies and he's holding up i don't remember what all the jokes are but he's like uh, dark side of the moon and he's like don't throw it and then he's batman soundtrack throw it throw it <laughs> it's such a perfectly calibrated it's, like it was a great joke every every nerd owns that and you, honestly time to let it go you'd throw it at the zombies <laughs> but um, it's awesome what yes. a score. It's one of the best scores, top 10 ever, honestly. Yes. It's, it's pretty I, I don't think that's, I don't, I don't know if that's hyper And it's hyper funny. Yeah. For the shootout in the chemical factory. Yeah. He's and got all, a million fun beats. The little waltz Riffs. that the Joker gets, the, the waltz yeah. music that's playing while Batman has his confrontation with all the goons is, yeah. is really fun. Yeah. It's a, it's oh, a great, man. great, great, great score. Well, let's talk about this baby time in the old town tonight. And it's got those Prince songs too, (laughs) which I suppose we should talk about. 
Thank you, Studio. Dude with the beatbox and Jack Nicholson dancing. Hey, that's one of the other great scenes in the movie. That scene is super fun. So we start with the opening credits. We build that anticipation, baby. We hear the music. We, Jake, you said you really connected to this as a little as a kid. Yeah, I, I just had I very I was pretty disappointed actually with it. This go, I think that was my biggest disappointment was the opening credits not living up to my five, six-year-old imagination. I didn't, I don't think as a kid, I processed all the cuts. Right. I think I processed it as a maze journey. Right, right. That was continuous. That's what I remembered. That's how I remembered it. And so I don't know how it looked on your TV. I watched it on Max, which is what we call HBO Max now. Mm -hmm. And it was just not as clean or as visually compelling as I just... And as my memory wanted it to be. Is your current HBO Max subscription include 4K? Is it the highest tier? If it's just the tier that you had before they switched to Max, then it's actually moved to 1080p, which in this particular movie makes a difference, I think, because there's so many little details and things to look at in the background. I do the thing where I subscribe and then automatically unsubscribe for a month, and that's what I did, and I don't know what I picked. I probably picked the middle tier and... Yeah, it almost certainly fed you the middle one and you almost certainly clicked it, which means you were seeing this movie in pretty good resolution. But I didn't know that. Um, That's disappointing. uh, I'm sure it it makes sense of it not looking as great as I, or I don't know. But anyhow, I would say that the opening credit scene is the one thing that didn't quite live up to. Yeah, I could, I can understand that. I think as a piece of, I don't know. I just miss opening credits so much. I just yeah. Anytime I see a well, this that was the best part of the the Superman. Movies. Yeah, exactly. It was it's like it builds so much anticipation. It's so cool. It's so fun. And you know, you take the Superman march. It tells you so much about the character. And Christopher Reeves Reeve lives up to that. And uh, Elfman's score creates such a mood and a vibe that this movie, I think, lives up to. Or at least is crazy enhanced by. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, uh, openings are so important to anything. Sometimes I'll, you know, you see like, I don't think we're guilty of this at Church of the King, but you see like a pastor or a preacher or somebody get up and they say, good morning. And then they shuffle their papers. Hey, you know, how's everybody doing? And then they, it's like, you don't throw away your opening, dude. Like you have one chance to grab everybody and you got to, Take that. And that's part of the job. That's part of the job. It's get there, get everybody's attention, reorganize everybody. You've just had some shuffle, some transition time. And so you have to, for everybody's own good, command their attention. Right. And it's not that you can't shuffle your papers and then say, boom, we're in. But at some point, there has to be the boom, boom, we're in. And if you don't do that, then you've thrown away a lot of opportunity to actually just have people's attention. And I see movies do this constantly where it's like, you could have a big opening set piece that tells us to pay attention, tells us to be excited, tells us to enter into the mood of the piece, tells us to leave behind our humdrum lives and enter into the world of the movie. And Gunn really did a nice job of that with the Guardians movie. Yes, he did. Yeah, Gunn, a consummate filmmaker, unlike some of these people. Uh, but Marvel movies were constantly in their prime guilty of this sort of, well, there he is. There's Tony. There's whoever. They're doing stuff. That's cool, I guess. Uh, Marvel had the one thing in their pocket, which the was the, the credit thing this the dun, 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 which yep. you'd feel the audience get excited but it's like dude you could 
continue exciting us for another five minutes if you just give us a credit sequence. And instead you put a cool credit sequence on the end of your movie for some reason. Like, wasn't that cool what you just saw? Yeah, but don't waste your opening, baby. So our movie starts, we get this wonderful first shot of this totally 80s city. I love that 80s is now period too, so it's not like modern period, period, but it's just pure period from our vantage point. But you've got this vast, you've got like a regular city and then this vast web of expressionistic kind of metropolis stuff. and um, Gotham City. Yeah. And you get this little opening scene that you almost think is going to be the Bruce Wayne, the Bruce Wayne story. story. I don't know if it's good that it intentionally mirrors his story or if it's kind of lame and weird. I can never decide, but you get your weird first animated shot yeah, of Batman. Uh, and then you get two guys that look like heroin addicts and are doing bad guy stuff. And Batman shows up and... I mean, I've I've always thought it was weird and anticlimactic right at the start that Batman doesn't stop the robbery as is happening. Right. <laughs> I've always, I always, I feel that every time I watch this, I'm like, what? I, I don't know oh. that I've ever felt that before this time, but this time it was like. I wanted the Christopher, at least the Christopher Reeve, like, here's your wallet, ma'am. Kind yeah. Of, and I know Batman moment, can't like, quite do that, but just have the wallet drop down or something. Yeah. Where's the moment where that family feels like. They Yay, had something given you, back. Yeah, they've had something given back to them, and the streets are safe because Batman's out there. Right, and that's like, that's someone... not the vibe he wants you to have. He wants you to have though the streets are scary for criminals, not safe for people. Yeah, what what the, it's really important to the yeah. makers of this movie is the guys having their little conversation. I've heard there's the Batman, and he dropped Tim Bad Guy forty feet, and he's you know that's not what I heard. I heard it was the Bat. Oh, he got junked out and fell off the top of. That's not, not. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Batman shows up. He does a couple of well placed kicks and only one. Oh boy, yeah, one well placed kick. And how do you guys feel about the bat suit in these old Batman movies? It's very limiting as in his mobility. He can yeah. only turn his neck about as much as the Tin Man or something like that. Turn, turns his shoulders to yeah. turn his neck. I I found myself. I, I wondered how all of that stuff would play. And to me, it just sort of played like, we're not doing action, we're doing iconography. Mm-hmm. And so... He's supposed to pose, not, not he, move. Yeah, he's supposed, to, he's supposed to pose. He's not supposed to move. He's supposed to be... So we're just going to cut away from him. Like, he's going to get shot. He's going to fall down. We're going to cut away. Then we're going to cut back. And he's going to rise back up and then kick a guy. And it's scary. Like, he's... it's It plays his iconography. And so I was just like, all right, I'm cool with that. Yep. Then your thoughts. Yeah, it's fun. It's a good introduction visually. It's good. I think in terms of the bat suit, I've always been a little disappointed by it until Snyder, actually, interestingly, because when I read Batman comics and even in the Batman animated show, you don't think of Batman actually as being in a suit. You think of him well, as being okay. kind of a being and the way they animate That's him and the, and the way he's drawn, like his eyes will show fear mm-hmm. or anger or yeah. it's like you think of him as being this very, this creature that can move that and the way he, the kind of mobility he's drawn is having. It just always felt like even in the Nolan films, the once you, there's something thuddingly literal about putting a guy in an actual body armored, body armored suit that is, that does not evoke what I actually love about the character. Like he can't go full sort of Phantom of the Opera, shadowy, shifty, 
figure. I and mean, I, I agree. It's what I love about the warehouse fight in um, the Snyder film. It just that's the first time Batman's felt as mobile and alive as I actually imagine him. For me, not having the comics and really having Adam West, this so the idea of Batman is a rich guy in an armored suit. And yeah, that has its limitations, but also its strengths. That's just how I understand him. That's, that's, it's you just, get it from these movies. So. Yeah, these movies are what define my understanding or idea of how Batman lives and operates in his world. I mean, Batman the Animated Series is cool. But this is real Batman. Yeah. I mean, in the animated series, he's a detective who wears a cowl. Right. And that, that, if I had to say who my Batman was, I'd probably say that. But at the same time, it makes no sense for him to be running around in tights like Adam West. But it does make sense for him to have body armor, especially as the rich Bruce Wayne. Yeah. I I guess I just never wanted it to make sense. I I like it living as more of an abstraction, actually. The thing that Nolan in his plot wants you to think, but then his he's very literal in the way he does it. Yeah, I mean I think that the best my favorite version of this style of bat costume is Batman Returns. That's where he takes this suit, he advances it, makes him a little more mobile, a little bit more sleek, a little bit more wraith like. I he makes it work pretty well. Yeah, I think it works well. I, I think just in terms of, not in terms of the movie quality, but in terms of the suits, I would go Snyder or Pattinson. I, I just think that we have better rubber suit technology yeah, now, yeah, I yeah. guess. Oh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, it's, yeah. it is it is cooler. And I like seeing Batman just be able to move more. Well, we haven't actually talked about the greatest thespian that's in this movie yet, but he's coming up next. It's uh, Billy D. Williams. He's a man of few words, but those words will count, and so will my <laughs> actions. And, uh, oh man, Ben, on a scale of one to ten, how great of a performance would you say Billy D. Williams gives? One being super great, and ten being like Brando level. <laughs> if one is super great, then probably a seven. So there you go. <laughs> Not quite. I'm full eleven on Billy D. Williams, man. I want to see his Two Face. I I do too. I always I'm sad when I watch this movie. Like ah. Uh, I mean, I, well, that's what's sort of fun about it as a kid. It's like, oh, that's Lando Calrissian. What's he doing in here? And he's just like in the background, adding some vibe or some color or whatever you however you want to put it, like mm-hmm. to this thing. And it's like, well, I know that guy. Like he's a guy, and he's just sort of like shows up at the table at the party or is on the TV in the background or whatever, like. Uh, I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I did, it's I a cool did, idea. I did too. I, I do not think that Billy D. Williams actually would have been a good Two Face because I just don't. No, I don't either, but I, it still made me wish that we got it. I mean, if Two Face wants to go to bed with you, then that, that, <laughs> that'd be one direction to take the character, but that's the only energy I've ever seen that guy give. So, all right. We're meeting Jack Napier. Well, I also like the idea of him sort of teasing a Two Face that we never get to see on screen. Yeah for a three or five movie run you show up in the third movie and two-face is another villain that batman's already defeated or something like that you know or you show up in the fourth or fifth movie and he's been around and has has he does billy williams show up in returns i don't think he does not at all i think he's just returns everything yeah tim burton just didn't care returns keeps gordon keeps the bat signal it does actually continue the sense that actually batman established legitimacy and now 
he's, you know, a deputy of the police force. Right. In returns. Okay, so we're meeting Jack Napier. And she says, I look, you look fine. I didn't ask. Decent people shouldn't live here. They'd be happier someplace else. <laughs> Pretty great line. Yeah, I mean, I really like the coiled menace of Jack Napier almost more than I. I mean, I, I love the performance of the Joker. I'm not trying to uh, harsh that buzz too much, but I like his gang. I'd love to see a whole movie of just sardonic gangster Jack Nicholson. I guess there's other movies I can watch to yeah. get things closer to that. But Yeah, it is really fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Jack Palance. Yeah, Jack Palance is wonderful. Uh, I love him. Uh, He's yeah. Ben rank the Joker's very and then quickly. Jack Nicholson's Jack Palance yes. performance is one of my things that, that's. <laughs> you are my number one. <laughs> guy. Uh, and then I like how he, how he does the little. <laughs> You're my number one guy. After, after Bob walks away, poor Bob. <laughs> poor Bob's an awesome character. Bob, he's just, so much fun. Bob, just a personal friend of Jack Nicholson's. They're just like so. Some guy's gonna be in the background, and who do you want, Jack? And so he's that kinda, guy's in all kinds of random roles. Yeah, Tracy yeah, he, Walters, I think his name. <clears throat> Rank the Jokers. Yeah, real quick. Oh, Jared Leto, obviously number one with a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <clears throat> I've only seen Jared Leto in the end credit scene of Zack Snyder's Justice League. No, he actually wasn't bad in that. The writing Correct. wasn't good, but he was so great. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'll put Heath Ledger first and Jack Nicholson second. And what's that guy's name from the 60s, Batman? Cesar Romero? I, I don't really remember him, so I can't rank him. Mark Hamill? Where do you put Mark Hamill? Goodness sakes, what am I doing? Mark Hamill's number one. I completely wasn't thinking about the animated series. Yeah. No, that's that's my Joker. Actually, yeah, that's he's, my Joker. He's a great Joker. He's amazing. Jake, your rank, your Joker ranking. Mark Hamill. I don't know. I I guess I I felt torn. As lamestream as it is, I I just don't think you can't put Heath Ledger over Nicholson. I mean, he's you do you, but I I could not in good conscience not have Heath Ledger. That movie is so bad without Heath Ledger. Yeah, and and he took Heath Ledger out of that movie, and that movie is such a mess. He's the only reason to ever watch that movie. We'll get a chance to talk about it one of these days, I hope. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, no. But Nicholson's such a fun, bright spot in this film. I don't know, man. I, it's really hard. I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you have to go Ledger, but, man, it you're does going. feel stupid to have to do that. So, obviously. I really think... People act like Ledger's performance retroactively negates what Nicholson did in this movie. And, that's not fair, and that's and why that's, that's you really, kind of want to put Nicholson first. Yeah, that's right, because it's really unfair. It feels like there needs to be a corrective. Nicholson sold out and was awesome and super fun and scary and menacing and psychotic. And, like, that Joker is scary. Like, he would just kill you. Yep. And he's just a, he feels just as arbitrary as... Ledger's Joker. Actually, Ledger's Joker feels much more calculated. Much more much philosophical. Less arbitrary, right? Like he's got, he has a reason. And Nicholson actually doesn't feel like he has a reason. Nicholson's closer to the Joker of the comics or the animated series. In that sense, he's Mm -hmm. just, he actually is, he feels more of an agent of chaos, like in the sense that he's not trying to be an agent of chaos. He's just unhinged and he's out there killing everybody and trying to make homicidal art. Right. 
He's an artist. Yeah, I think my problem with the conception of Joker in this movie has to do with Jack Napier's transformation into him. But if you just started with Jack Nicholson as this Joker, I, I realize that would be a dumb way to do the movie too. But I don't mind this just existing as the Joker. I think it's a good endpoint. I think I, I'm going to put Heath Ledger one, number one. I'm sorry, but you know it's an iconic performance for a reason. And who cares if the movie hasn't aged that well? It's a great performance and a great piece of pop iconography in and of itself. Makes a great poster, makes a great poster child for your stupid anarchist cause, whatever it is. I mean, it's just, it's great. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to do a tie. That's right. I'm going to do a tie between Nicholson and cheat. Fine. I'll do Nicholson and then Hamill. No, I'll do Hamill, then Nicholson, and then uh, Cesar Romero, and then Jared Leto, and then Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, I didn't even rank him. I haven't seen that, and I won't. It sucks. I, I hate it. It's I, bad. I hate him in it. I hate it. I, yeah, I put the whoever that kid is who has the little cameo scene or whatever in uh, Matt Reeves' Batman ahead of Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. and ahead of, well, no, just ahead of Joaquin Phoenix's. Just yes. because he hints at something mm-hmm. that it's not fair to put him ahead of Leto because Leto actually tried to give some kind of performance, even though it also sucks yeah but jared leto's a bad actor and a terrible human being and i just yeah yeah he's the worst yeah he ruins everything he touches yeah he's a yeah it's just bad not his fault that suicide squad sucks i'm sure he was trying to do something but he's good in panic room <laughs> playing a playing in a, a, a twerp yeah he's so bad in blade runner 2049 that i turned it off i, I hated him in that i hate jared leto uh, he's an awful person you could not name i, I think what makes a, him so awful sorry i don't remember the jared leto He's like, he's well known for grooming minors and things like that. All right. And he's one of those, he's the most obnoxious version of the, I'm a method actor. So I've got to do awful things. I'm playing the Joker. I'm going to send rats to people. And And that's not anywhere near the worst things he did. I mean, he's, I'm going to do really gross stuff. Perverse. You know, as people. Sexually perverse things. People who are not me have pointed out, no one ever method acts as a nice person. No, I'm so in the role of Mr. Rogers that I. Left gifts for everybody. Maybe Tom Hanks didn't no, do that. It's just actually. an excuse to be to be evil. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, he's the worst. We're beating Knox. What do you guys think about Knox? Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's all right. I always like Knox. Yeah. I think I like him more this go than ever for the same maybe the same reasons. He's just yeah, colorful and fun. He's a very movie character based on old it's movies annoying, and stuff. But the right kind of annoying. Yeah, I mean, I like movies that have supporting characters that are interesting, which right. we, we get relatively little of these days. Just, eh, he's let's get, make this guy colorful. Why not? Go ahead. Try to chew up the scenery. Good luck. Yeah, see if you can steal the movie from Nicholson and... And Keaton. And yeah. Knox comes the closest to anybody, I guess. Not yep. that he gets that close, but... But uh, yeah. it's fun that they said, have a ball if you can do it. Do it. Good luck. Yep. And the guy did such a good job that they decided not to kill off his character, even though they didn't bring him back. But he was going to die in the chemical haze at the end. He had a cool death defending Vicky in the car or whatever. But then they were like, let's just let's not kill him because we could see this Knox going someplace. Spinoff. I would not watch a Knox spinoff. When is HBO Max going to have a Knox limited series or something? Uh, and we meet Vicky. Hello, legs. <laughs> it's nice to go back to a time when legs were considered to be sex objects. We've moved so far past that these in today's culture. 
that it's always other things, but like we're much more crass, but it used to be just be that legs symbolized all sexuality through most of the mid-century and beyond, but now you just see legs everywhere. So that's my deep thought about the line, hello legs. What do you guys think about Kim Basinger or Bassinger, however you say her name? Basinger, I think. She's fine. She does a good job. She's a pretty credible, like, I'm smart. I have some interiority. I have some kind of, there's some kind of person here. Not just a pretty face. She wears glasses. She wears glasses. She screams. She's a damsel in distress. Not totally helpless, but still a damsel in distress. She does not kick any butt. And that's really refreshing today. It feels like such a throwback because... kind of is. It kind of is. Yep, it's a throwback. <laughs> hey, you remember women? Yeah, she's all right. Jake, you're Kim Basinger thoughts? She does all the things that Ben said. I like her best with Knox, actually. I think they have good chemistry. The whole, like, Vicky, will you marry me? No, that, like, the little yeah. snappy cuff. I don't feel Reporter, like she's... Reporter, newsroom. Yeah, the kind of His Girl Friday stuff that they do is fun. Yep. I, I don't feel like she has a ton of chemistry with Michael Keaton, but maybe that's the point. I don't know. I think we're to the party. The party at Wayne Manor where they play Prince music for some reason. It's almost like Prince was doing the soundtrack for this film. But yeah, I think we've already said a lot of what we want to say about Michael Keaton in that scene. It's He's wonderful playing yeah. this kind of, as I said, Elon Musk type. Well, another thing he brings is the sense you have for him that he is actually very vulnerable all the time. Yeah. Because as closed as he is and autistic as he is, plays this this guy, he feels like someone you have to protect. Someone protect this guy. Someone help him. And that's why Alfred works so well with him. You don't feel like a Clark Kent kind of all his fumbling and misplacing things. You actually don't feel like that's just his Bruce Wayne act. You feel like he's that he is actually that distracted. And yeah, he's got his own. He's got his one singular mission. These people are here and he wants them in his house and in this room for a reason. And he's just paying attention to what he's paying attention to. And that's all he cares about. And so he keys in on Vicki Vale. But it's not just because she's hot. It's because she's also this reporter that he knows exactly who she is. He's got his file that he pulls up. He knows that she did the Cordo Maltese Maltese bit. It's just like all there in his mind. And she's wandering around and she's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Good scene. It's a good scene. Yeah, I love I love the tiled floor and the room with all the medieval stuff. And there's just a lot of fun little Details, get Knox a grant is a great button for the scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like any time a character can be, we can have fun with the fact that a character is super wealthy. Uh, movies used to do that before we just had to hate everyone who had any money and make them feel bad for it. But uh, yeah, it's always good when Bruce Wayne can just buy out an entire restaurant or it turns out he owns the place that you're trying to woo your lady in or any, mm-hmm. any anything. Or he has the entire cheerleading squad as his girlfriend or something. Like That's what we want from Bruce Wayne. In my humble opinion, I think okay, we're to the we get some Jack Palance stuff. Jack Palance is obviously awesome, and then we go to the one of those patented movie factories that doesn't do anything but shoot steam everywhere so that people can have fights on catwalks. <sighs> Love it! What a great set! It's a great set, not a great action scene. No, but this time watching it as a series of comic book panels, I probably enjoyed it more than I ever have, and enjoyed the cartoony. Sound design. I did too. I really enjoyed the sound design. design. I was like, okay, this is really fun. I always watched it as, why isn't this a cool action scene? Now I'm watching it as, man, what a cool comic book scene. Right. 
We've certainly got our fill of good Batman action scenes, so we can afford by this time in <laughs> the universe's sure. history. So we can afford to be generous with this movie, not having them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that Batman needed more agent for the story that they're trying to tell to work is better. Batman needed a more real agency and the Joker. Obviously, Batman can't just punch the Joker intentionally into acid, but there has to be some, I, I think, a little bit more causality. This just kind of feels like. Like you need Dorothy to be in the house when it falls on the wicked mm-hmm. witch of the east that the wicked witches of the west is going to be mad. This mm-hmm. kind of feels like if Dorothy was just happened to be standing there when the house fell and then right. be, and then they tried to play like this whole you made me kind of thing. Right, yeah. is, uh, not quite there, but it feels like a, it's just a draft or two away. But it's fine. It's fine. The Joker falls in some green acid. He shoots that guy that plays evil cops and things like that that guy's really fun is yeah. nick beard he's alone. got that voice yeah. <laughs> yeah i love that they just like that scene they definitely the very first intro scene they definitely had no shame about anybody seeing the seams of them dubbing it i noticed some dubbing but i couldn't tell yeah, this, i was well from i don't know how it played on your screen but the very first scene that he shows up and he's talking to knox in mm-hmm. the alley after so not it's both Knox's introduction and his introduction after that opening scene with the guys. It was a giant bat, man. They're very clearly it was very clear to my ears that they were just like dubbing him as, as low and whisper gravelly and then was then turned <laughs> up. Right. I don't know. I just thought that was really fun. Interesting. From the beginning. That's yeah. That guy's great. Whatever you have to do to get that voice is Fine by me. Yeah, and can I? I just want to point this out again. It this movie really does transition. I'm not sure just exactly where the transition is, but for at least the first hour, it's like carefully laying all this pipe, all this plotting. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how a character will get from A to B, physically, logistically, logically. It's just much more careful. And then at some point, it's ah, we're in Gotham. We're in Crazy World. Yeah, I mean, I, stuff will just happen. I would pinpoint it around the time that the Joker emerges. Once the Joker establishes himself and starts doing things, that's when I guess that's both the true. plot and the it seems to get even looser though as it goes. Yeah, and then it, it unravels more and more and more until it's suddenly a parade and balloons and poison gas. It's and Gothic Tower, and it just okay. Yep. All right, now we're getting to the perfunctory love scenes. We're going to do a little Citizen Kane long table yeah. joke. And the only thing I resent about this scene, I don't, A, like I said, I don't think Batman needs to be making love to ladies. It's not in at least my conception of the character. And I'd really appreciate it if Indiana Jones didn't do it either, but at least it makes sense for Indiana Jones in a way that it, for me, at least doesn't make sense for Batman. But I don't know. The only thing I resent about these love scenes is that the movie makes me spend time with them. Like they're, the movie doesn't actually care that much about Vicky and Bruce as a couple, and so why should I? In the original script, so I've been looking over it just a little as we've gone, cares a lot more. Yeah, I think you've either got to lean away from it or lean into it. Those are your choices, and basically they lean away from it, but... They're still trying to split the difference. Yeah, it, it, the, especially watching this as a kid, it, the movie really drags when they're going up the stairs and everything, and... yeah. And then we cut to Alfred. It's like he's providing the warmth, and our warm relationship with that actor, with Michael Goh, is kind of perform. Uh, giving you the emotional heft that you don't mm-hmm. really get, but you can feel the filmmakers even feeling like, I don't know if this works because they cut back to Jack Nicholson getting his monster makeover. And you've got that great 
sort of smash the mirror, mirror breaking scene. That awesome. surgery scene is amazing. Yeah, and I love that it's like a German. Let's see how we did. Yeah, a character from like a see silent what I film. have to work with. <laughs> you see what I have to work, and then he cut yeah. to these barbaric looking <laughs> tools. Yeah, <laughs> that was right. awesome. almost the most disturbing thing in the movie. Yeah. Oh man! And then we got Jack Palance biting the bullet. Jack Nicholson's big reveal as the Joker comes out shooting him. Danny Elfman lays in this great circus music. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I'll make one more complaint about Jack Nicholson's Joker. I love, I, I really like this movie, folks, but I, I do wish Jack N- Nicholson was at a b- very portly stage of his career. And I do think the Joker ought to be a more gaunt character. Total nerd complaint, not a real complaint, I guess, but the, this is a very uh, well fed Joker. <laughs> Um, like you get Cillian Murphy to play the Scarecrow Crow. You don't get Vincent D'Onofrio to play the Scarecrow. <laughs> and <laughs> I think this is kind of the same, but whatever. Wow. Jack Nicholson is a good enough actor. Uh, and then maybe my favorite scene in the movie, the Jack Nicholson with the gangsters scene. What's with that stupid grin? <laughs> Tim Burton is a good comedy director. Like he, yeah. he knows how to, you don't actually see it until the guy asks what's with a stupid grin. And then you wait a beat, you <laughs> cut to Jack Nicholson with this dumb, <laughs> bad human makeup. Yeah. makeup thing. Oh man. And what does he say? Like I've been getting a lot of joy out of life or I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> but then he fries the poor dude and has his big, I'm glad you're dead. <laughs> what do you think? You think I should just go ahead and kill the rest of the guys too? Freeze them now? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're one vindictive dude. I'm glad you're dead. And then he gets a huge kick out of it. Starts laughing. <laughs> it's cackling off screen. I'm glad you're yeah, dead. I'm glad you're dead. Yeah, that might be my favorite Joker scene. But then, okay, so for, for me, this is where the movie breaks down a little bit. You get a series of kind of inert. This is where the most sort of the least the the causality is just lost and it's just kind of things happening there's the chemical stuff there's random scenes in the joker's hideaway where he's mad at batman or falling I think in love he's with mad Vicky. at t- that tv he's mad at the tv suddenly he has all i realize he really hates tvs <laughs> yeah he kills a couple of them we're <laughs> calibrating ourselves to this fairy tale world where the joker has all this tech and all these bizarro toys now which is fine i guess but I'm not sure that the first act of the movie actually makes me feel like he would just have all these toys, but I guess he's an inventor or something. He scored high on chemistry. I know that much. Science, chemistry, and art. Science, chemistry, and art. Um, stop me if you guys want to visit anything in this section. I think the next big scene is the art museum. But there's the mime scene. Yeah, the mime scene's great. Awesome. That's a good Joker. That's, that's like a good, serious, yeah, amazing, scary Joker scene. And yeah, like that's the kind of. That's more on the vibe with what Nolan was doing with what happens when a character like this actually lands in the city of Gotham. How does it affect people? And all these scary mimes show up and all of a sudden they've got Tommy guns for, and it's going to kill everybody. Yep. And it's great to, uh, like you said, Michael Keaton just sort of absorbed. In the what's only it. person who doesn't react. It is great. Yep. Uh, yeah. And then we have the big art scene. What do you guys think about the Prince music? In That's this? the, Best place for I mean that oh, and, yeah. the, and the parade. I, yeah, the best I think, place for the Prince music. I think it's a great song. Actually, I think it works really well for that. See, New King in Town, all that stuff is fun. Yeah, Prince also feels 
gross enough, sinner enough that it works with the Joker. I, I'm not, maybe that was intentional on Prince's part. It's intentional on Burton's part. But Prince is also, I mean, he's just a gross person. Yeah, I think he's probably better than Michael Jack. Michael Jackson's his own kind of gross, but Michael, but pop mainstream eighties Michael Jackson, I think, might have been wrong. Obviously, that was the yeah, other. Yeah, he would have felt too clean. Yeah, that's right. And kid friendly for that sort yeah. of thing. Oh yeah, Prince has you know even purple. Prince right? is sleazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Prince is yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do not recommend that anybody watch Purple Rain the movie if you've never seen it. It's a pretty sleazy movie. It's just a it's just a visual mental connection. The color palette. Yeah, Prince. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love this art scene. I wish more movies would actually slow down for just like, here's a fun thing that you've always wanted to do or see the Joker do like Marvel. Not to pick on Marvel, but there's such an obvious counterpoint. They don't always. I think actually like the first Iron Man and certain movies they do like, hey, wouldn't it be just fun to be figuring out how to fly with Iron Man? That kind of thing. Yep. But more and more they get away from that and that's something that these kinds of movies can do that can be so much fun. Like, well, okay, the Joker's an anarchist that can do anything anywhere. So what's something that we've all kind of daydreamed about that would just be fun to stop the movie for a little showpiece about it? What's fun about devilish anarchy? And Jack Nicholson sure earns his paycheck with all the all his awesome dance moves and miming the statue. And then Batman yeah. has probably his best action beat the whole Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, and Danny Elfman might have his best music cue. Well, that that whole scene, ramping up the tension of Joker's desire to mutilate Vicky Vale. Oh, yeah, when he sprays acid at her, that's it's so just, mean. It's just yeah. so cruel. Yeah. What he did to the other girl, everything just feels so awful and cruel. And at the same time, it's being played like a comedy banter scene. Mm. It's been cut like that. And then Vicky's getting scared. He looks up, boo, she screams, bump, 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 Batman comes through the glass. It's just a perfect cascade of effects. Yeah, it really does. In that scene. You really do are relieved he when Batman shows the, up. He points his grappling gun. Th- I had that toy, by the way. He points that grappling gun thing right at Joker's face. Right. And then the wings flip out and it goes yep. side to side and he's able to, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's just played for iconography. And I, it's super fun. And it's perfect dramatically. I mean, mm-hmm. I just it does so many things. Although, why didn't Batman just send a grappling hook through? The, the, there's things like that that the movie just does not bother to. No. Does not care. Right. It doesn't like, care. This story could end right here, but instead it doesn't for some reason. Or at the very least, it would behoove Batman to try, even if we're going to contrive a reason why he doesn't <laughs> succeed. Nathan, his reason is so long as there's a civilian there, especially one he's personally invested in, his priority is get her out without damage. Uh, I don't buy that for a second. But <laughs> <laughs> I think the, his reason is this screenplay still has 30, like 30 pages to go. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I tried, guys. I mean, at least have all the goons pull machine guns and train them on Batman such that it's like, oh, you better get out of here. I mean, I, I realize yeah. ostensibly maybe that's the dynamic, but they don't really make it the dynamic. No. Yeah, Jack Lewis was great in the scene. He terrorizes Vicky Vale. I do feel like the, for my wife's money at least, his mutilation of his old girlfriend maybe goes a little far. And uh, she, she it's was so horrible. There's a, there is a real mean spirit to that. I suppose you could argue the Joker should have, but it leaves the realm of comic book fun and enters a more true horror movie villain yeah. 
vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it awful. gives it's the darkest thing about the movie. Right. Now to be fair, everybody's favorite Joker, Heath Ledger, I think has his moments like that. And, but nothing that nothing that feels actually that gruesome. Any anytime he does one of his little stunts like the pencil trick or something, it's always someone who's signed on to be in this world and probably deserves it. It's never, yeah, it's of a piece with the electric buzzer. Yeah, exactly. Thing, right? Which we, we don't feel bad for that guy even though he gets turned into an Indiana Jones relic. But yeah, yeah, doing it to this woman who I suppose she signed on to be with these people, but it's a little different. And then when he smashes the later, when he smashes the little mask, uh, yeah, yeah. there's just something. So, yeah. I don't actually think modern Tim Burton would do that. This is like a young, angry man's version of this character in this movie. So we're getting into the what I would have considered as a child the most iconic thing about this movie, which is the Batmobile with its... Oh, yeah. Still the best Batmobile, I'd say. I don't know that it comes close. Nolan's Tumblr was a refreshing change of pace, but man, it's a great Batmobile. It feels pretty sterile next to this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good change of pace. It was, we were all just, the zeitgeist at the time was, we just want the thing that feels real. Mm. What would he Mm. actually, what would Bruce Wayne actually do? It's the military tech that didn't quite make it to market. Yeah, but this Batmobile rules. It, again, it's more iconography, like you guys were saying, with the other fight scenes than it is actual action. Like what the Batmobile actually does wouldn't distinguish itself in a good cop TV show with it, you know, going around corners and hitting random stuff. It's like, there's nothing too exciting about this, but... You get a much better version of this Batmobile. You get a lot more action with it in Batman Returns, actually. Yes. You, you, you get a bunch of super cool, fun things that make even better toys. Yes, Yes, Batman Returns is the ultimate toy Batman movie, in my humble opinion. But maybe that's just because I was the right age when it came out. Uh, Batman fights. Is that, that the one where the it splits off on the sides? Yeah, it's a yeah. And I had it's that one. Fantastic, right? That toy where you can yeah. actually split the sides off of it. Now that chase cool. scene is like a, still works like a modern action scene. Basically, it's just like fully there. I'm looking forward to rediscovering it. I don't remember it that well. I loved that the Penguin had his own duck vehicle toy that you could get to. Like <laughs> I do too. Joker doesn't have like his equivalent. <laughs> vehicle no. that you can make up your own no the penguin has stories some great toys yeah penguins all penguins toys i have such nostalgia for batman gets out of the car we have my favorite thing as a kid and my favorite thing now which is that weird armadillo armor obviously yeah animated awesome and then we've got a really dorky fight with a ninja guy which is fun to watch yes i do you I can do. see what they're doing i like it you can i don't know it's just the batman version of the indiana jones scene but he actually kicks him. You know? Yes. It's not as good as, I mean, it's not comedically timed quite right, but it's fun. No. It's fun for a second. You actually see Batman doing some martial arts stuff. Yes. Blocking sword blows. You're like, oh yeah, he does know martial arts. Well, and also they're just solving a problem. They're like, okay, if you wore a giant cumbersome suit like this, you wouldn't be able to move that fast. So, and you wouldn't be able to do that. So much. what would your fight style be? You'd be like very minimalist. Yeah, very yep. simple blocks and you're yeah. relying on your armor and your armor's good. And that's fine. I mean, it's, sure. not, it's And not. you wait for or create or create your moment, your one opportunity, and you make the most of it. Right. And you hope your opponent is coming on too aggressively and being thoughtless. And that's what Batman does. Then we have the drive to the Batcave with Vicky. Pure cinema. Love it. Driving into the id. Don't know if I have anything else to say about it, but it's my favorite scene in the movie and probably my favorite scene in almost any Batman movie. It just feels so dark and grand. And Danny Elfman gets to show off. That's the other thing that modern movies don't do. A, they don't have iconic scores a lot of the time. But even when they do, they don't just say, 
Let's live with it. Let's live with it. Like Spielberg and Lucas were both good at this. And then you watch the modern Star Wars or the modern Indiana Jones. What they often don't do is say, you know what? This scene is going to all just be music. We're going to pull the sound effects back and we're going to let, we've got John Williams, so we're going to let him carry this and we're no dialogue. Like it's just music. And it's beautiful when you have great music and you can do that. All right. We're getting through this. So we got the, you want to get nuts scene, I guess is the next big scene. This is where I'll just point out structurally. It's like, we're going to have two separate scenes where the Joker shows up. He terrorizes Vicky. Batman kind of does something and then he goes away. And you know, it's just, that's, that's not good structure, but it's fine. They're both great scenes. And like I said, it doesn't feel like to me, at least like Keaton's actually playing the character here. It feels more like he's playing Michael Keaton wanting to do a good scene with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. It still has so many fun ideas though. Like Jack Nichol, the like Joker's going to walk in and say the exact same first two That's lines right. that Bruce Wayne's going to say when he walks mm-hmm. in. Like there's a ton of fun little things like that happen, but yeah, it does feel. It's kind of random. Uh, yeah. The, Gonna grab the thing and smash stuff on the mantelpiece and yell, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Doesn't really make any sense for Bruce Wayne. I <clears throat> I don't know. The argument would be Bruce Wayne is reading, he's playing with the Joker's desire for craziness. He's like, okay, I'm going to pretend that I'm crazy too. And it'll just kill me. That's the, I thought what you were going to say is the argument is he's got this psychosis in him all the time. We just don't see it. No. I actually buy, I I buy so. what you just said a lot more than that. The yeah. idea that he's just adapting. No, I feel like he's, I, yeah, I just feel like he's just playing him. He's like, how can I get this guy to just shoot me and get out of here? But what a weird calculus. It's like, weird. Well, it's what it's was, weird. Why does it, it work? Make what, any was, what was the sense? Joker there to do anyway? Just drop yeah. in on Vicky? Like, yeah. None well, of it makes any sense. Wh- in that why sense. is he going to shoot him? Only in the little square where the tray was, and it's not going to do any real damage to him, and it's going to end the whole confrontation. Like, why does any of that make any sense at all? It does. It, it doesn't. There's no logic whatsoever. And then doesn't does is this the scene that ends with Vicky opening a package? That's right. Yes. And then and dun 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 dun. Like, how many times can one woman faint to end <laughs> a section great. of a movie? All right, but <laughs> yeah. And then we have the two. F- Plot points that fans hate, the Joker killed his parents and Alfred lets Vicky into the cave, happen right on top of each other. Tell me if I'm crazy, but that wasn't just another night for us. Uh, (laughs) Arguably the lamest section of the movie. I don't know how much I care about either one of those plot points. I don't that much, but it's just not a great section of the movie. And then we get Batman blowing up the evil factory. (laughs) It's awesome. It's amazing. He's just like... This is going to kill a lot time of to go, guys. Time to go to war. I know. This Batman <laughs> does... I don't know. Everybody acts like Batman always had the rule of not killing. And maybe at some point in the comics he did. I think he did. He certainly doesn't in the old Bob Kane 40s stuff. Like you said, Ben, I guess they implemented it at some they point. They did. It was pretty quick. But it, but it, in the Nolan movies, they act like it is such a defining feature of his character. And It uh, has been at times. Yeah. Well, Tim Burton certainly didn't, didn't think so. But that's Dark Knight Returns. I mean, it'd be, I guess we should go back. The Batman comics that I've read, I feel like they're always on the Nolan side of things. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not saying he does kill. I'm just saying them making such a thing out of 
it. Even in Batman Returns, I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you. It's a plot point of how far does Batman go? You mean... Sorry, Batman Begins. Batman Begins. (laughs) Batman Returns. Yeah, Batman Returns, he uh, (laughs) kills that one clown. There's... Yeah. Yeah, but he's just going to blow up this evil factory, drop a big bomb. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very beautiful sequence of explosions. Drive in, armor up, drop your grenades... Even the way that the Batmobile drops the bomb is a little joke. Mm. Oh? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the bad guys are like, what's that? Very Tim Burton. It's the way that the Martians treat everybody in Mars attacks. It's just always like, clunk, 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 clunk. Stupid people? Boom. <laughs> Violence. <laughs> Tim Burton loves that sort of Looney Tunes rhythm. It does. It is where the plot really falls apart. It's like, okay, so Batman, you always could have solved this problem if you wanted to. You could have just gotten went and got the Joker. Like, what's it doesn't make any sense. I guess you didn't know well, where he was. Well, is that a thing? Does he ever say that? I don't think they say that. Maybe that's implied. I don't know. There is a sense in which it does feel like, ah, oh, he's putting things together. He's piecing it together. Oh, this is Jack Napier. Oh, this is a crime web. This dude is just escalating things out of control and he's not going to stop. So, time to just. And he came after my girl. So. Yep. Time to just go to war <laughs> and blow the crap out of everything. Like, all right, this is total war. This is total war. Yeah. I'm actually ready for this. I didn't want to have to go this far, but might as well. Here we go. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am so tired of the angst, the sort of effeminate angst about anything related to war or killing. Or It's like movies are so brutal these days. It felt pretty cathartic. But they're also so... We're going to rub your noses in the worst violence possible. But then it's like, John Wick's soul has been shattered. I was like, no, you just told me it was fun for two hours. And then you're going to tell me it's not fun to atone for it at the end. How about we just pick a lane, fellas? So the fact that this movie doesn't feel the need to make a big deal out of what who Batman is and how far he goes. It's just like, eh, you know, he's at war with bad guys. That's what you do. It's kind of refreshing, I would say. Mm-hmm. It felt pretty cathartic. <laughs> yeah i feel a little these, bit these guys are the kinds of people that are like just killing innocent people torturing a girl physically and emotionally and psychologically till she throws herself off her roof like, and these are chemicals that were being put in baby food and stuff like yeah exactly you, you like you don't get a second chance yeah like, the, no due all, process all lines all possible lines have been crossed at this point if you are so, the secretary that works in this factory, then you still deserve to have a giant bat bomb dropped on you. Good for you, Batman. So I guess we're, yeah, so we got the the bat wing stuff. The Joker, suddenly Gotham loves the Joker and wants his money, and he's out in the open, and the police don't try and do anything again. The movie has completely unraveled by this point, but who cares? Right. They don't hear too much criticism here, folks. I have great affection for this movie. I just think it's, we're doing a podcast. It's fun to talk about these things. So he gets the bat wing, which... Maybe it was the 4K of it all. Not as good of a special effect as yeah. my childhood remembered. It feels Same. pretty like a toy at some points. Mm-hmm. Nice That's little Star cool. Wars uh, hat tip with the targeting sequence. That, was, that thing's fun. I do love cool. him going down the cannon and Jack Nicholson pulling out a giant Louis, Looney Tunes gun. <laughs> <laughs> and ending the Batwing with it. <laughs> yeah, and ending it's the Batwing. It's kind of amazing. And then the Batwing, as fast as it's supposedly going, just kind of... Skids to a halt and he hops out. Well, he has to claw his way out, Jake. He's badly hurt, too. Is he? Yeah. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) The movie told me he was. He's like staggering over these pew benches. Then they they fight their way 
up the stairs. We have the kind of Hitchcock vertigo shots and lots of battling and the night's Denny Elfman doing a lot of work with the music to make it all gothic and grand and and then I I, I <laughs> the goons he fights it is pretty fun yeah there's another ninja guy who flips toward him and it took me a lot of watches of this sequence to figure out what the goon is even doing but he has blades that are coming out of his feet okay he's aiming at Batman with his feet he's coming down with his feet Batman <laughs> whips out the spatula tool <laughs> he keeps <laughs> under his forearm yes. and he's like flap. <laughs> What happened? I don't know, but Batman spatula did. <laughs> I just kind of love it. Like, I don't know what it was. I don't know where it hit the goon. I just know that Batman was like, oh, it's the foot knives in a front flip. So spatula. Spatula, obviously. <laughs> foot knives in front flip equal spatula. And, and then the next goon is just like, ah, but then he just falls through the floor. <laughs> That's it's, funny. It's a that great a good joke. joke. That's a very Tim Burton. <laughs> Batman oh, does his most sort of direct killing of somebody here is a guy that leans over the parapet into the bell or whatever, and Batman just yanks him. It's pretty hardcore. He bongs him his with head his against feet. the bell. Right, yeah. It bongs him on the bell and then just lets him drop. I mean, that's there's a little maybe some of those factory guys got out, but that you just murdered that guy. Um <laughs> it was self-defense. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it wasn't actually murder, folks, but whatever. Oh man. And then You've got this final confrontation with the Joker, which is so silly. You have Vicky Vale literally pulling the, oh, Mr. Joker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. And Joker falling for it. Yeah. You have Joker. These are not criticisms. These are the opposite. These are commendations. You've got Joker pulling out glasses so he can do you when he <laughs> wouldn't hit a guy with glasses. <laughs> I will say Heath Ledger, for all his greatness, is a little short on zaniness. Like you, you do want yeah. there to be some actual jokes to your Joker and Jack Nicholson. Some pizzazz. Some pizzazz. He provides that. Um, oh, we forgot about my one of my favorite Joker little things that I'm sure Jack Nicholson just came up with in the spot is that balloon thing that he does where he <laughs> off screen at, at Vicky's apartment. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so Jack Nicholson just has a whole catalog of those kinds of things that he can pull out for a character <laughs> like this. Uh, yeah. Batman's, yeah, they, they state the duality themes out loud for any moron in the audience. The, you made me, I made you, you gotta... Then the Joker tries to get away in the helicopter. Even that, though, was much more subtle than they would do it now. Oh, they yeah, there'd be a whole... It, it's in there, it's scripted, but it's like, it happens so fast... That it, well, Heath Ledger does a great job with the character, but think about how thuddingly literal that movie, The Dark Knight, is, even the best of them. And, and it's like, he's the Joker. He's an anarchist. He just wants to see the world burn. No, he does not have a backstory. Some men are like, it's just going to explain and explain. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 his explanation is that the guy's indecipherable, but it's going to tell you that like nine times. Like, here's an idea. How about we're making a movie? We can show it right. instead of tell it. Well, I hope I have a chance to talk about that. Oh, yeah, it's the Joker gets caught on a gargoyle and falls. What are you laughing at? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great, That's too. the setup, and then here's the payoff. <laughs> Cargo's going to take you down. Amazing. And it falls to his demise. And then in a in a betrayal of all geography... Batman, <laughs> Batman's grappling hook is going to get back up and 
just instantly, which Burton plays off as a joke. It's just, oop, stops them. Vicky Vale's going to be like, oh, <laughs> which is funny, but it's like it makes no sense. Now, to be fair, grappling hooks have been defying geography in movies uh, Yeah, but since you can make me the 40s. suspend disbelief or you can <laughs> yeah, just no, not bother. It does, it does not try I like her. everything that defies geography, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? Maps and terrain? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, not geography. Physics, Physics? I guess. Oh, trigonometry. I meant in in a broader sense. The geography of the scene. Like, Like where would the grappling hook go? Yeah, where would the grappling hook go? How far has Batman fallen? Well, now Ben Spider Man always with his webs, and he can build the desert, and somebody's winging along. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan. That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) I stand corrected. Actually, all superheroes are. (laughs) I know. That is uh, the lamest kind of nerd nerd rebuke. I hate it when <laughs> you're talking about a movie with a man who dresses as a bat, Ben. How dare you ask these questions? <laughs> All right, so Jack Nicholson's dead. They brought that toy back in the Flash. They did. It did nothing for me. It did nothing for me either. Oh, they did bring. Oh, they brought that. They brought the toy. The little laughing Yeah, I know thing. that. But yeah. yeah, it's like in his cave as a memento or oh. something, and oh. yeah, Flash walks past it, and it does its... It doesn't, it doesn't earn it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't earn a thing. Earn it. That's um, so stupid. There's so many different fun, cool things that you can do in the multiverse when you have characters and worlds like this to play with. Oh, yeah. I It did make me want to watch it. The Flash? Mm-hmm. Watching this made me want to watch The Flash. <sighs> You will be disappointed. It will just do, so I could be disappointed. I it think, will do but, nothing. Yeah. I was what I realized watching the Flash is I wasn't excited about seeing Michael Keaton again. I was a little bit, but I was much more excited about seeing Burton's Batman World again, and they just didn't do that. And it was very sad. No. I guess I should have known they didn't do that from the fact that they didn't do it in the trailers or anything. But okay, so Batman's with Vicky. There's a bat thing in the sky. I was going to be excited about seeing uh, Christopher Reeve. Back from the dead, but then nobody was, and so I wasn't. I wish I had been. You know, it might it might have done a little bit for you. I don't know. I mean, there he is, but they didn't give him anything. They didn't give him anything to do. Yeah, he's just there. That's stupid. Yeah, best part. And he's standing because I tried to avoid thinking the thought, and then once I thought the thought, I thought the thought. Then once I thought the thought, I wrote the ten cool versions in my head that would actually I would actually like to see. And, of course, they weren't going to do any of them. Well, and they have him standing next to Supergirl from the lamest of those movies that no one cares about, as opposed to having undead Margot Kidder or something, which I think we'd all like a little bit better. Why not just have it be him instead of a battery of Super... Like, why not have him show up? And there's so many cool... Like, what I kept going to are all the... So what my mind went to... I don't know if you all remember this... Do you care that we take no. this diversion? I I don't remember what year it was, but there was a Super Bowl commercial. And there was a Super Bowl commercial back in the day, like in the early 2000s or something like that. And they're talking about medical technology and there's this like TED Talk kind of thing. And they're talking about the advances that they've made. And then Christopher Reeve comes out on his scooter and then he stands up and takes a step. And it's all CGI, but I remember watching that and like wanting to believe, like wanting to be fooled 
in the moment. Like I remember it feeling like I was at a party and I remember it feeling like the whole room came to a standstill and like everybody got crazy emotional for a moment. It was really cool because he, he dedicated so much of his life after that to uh, medical research and wanting to walk again and wanting to push the cause forward so that even if he didn't someday, the technology would exist for that sort of thing. You wanted to believe it happened and that we were like getting the reveal in the commercial and everybody knew better, but everybody wanted to not know better for half a second. And like I like, and so I don't like, I don't, because of that commercial in, in my memory of it and because of how that played and how many speeches there are that you can find of him talking about this sort of thing, like I had no problem whatsoever with a CGI'd. Christopher Reeve. Like, I think his estate would be for it. I think he would have been for it if he was still alive. Like, I don't think that there's a problem with that. But then you have all this stuff that he could have said or done that draws on the best of what Superman represents and what he tried to make his life represent. That could have just felt really sweet and cool. And that's where my mind went with all of it. And then to hear like, oh, he just sort of like stands there and smiles next to Supergirl. Yeah, no, no, now that that actually feels like exploitation. There's a way to do it that did, there are a million ways to do it that wouldn't have felt like that to me, but that feels like exploitation. You have to do something that you feel like, and that's why I didn't go see it. That's why. The real that's Christmas. the truth. That's the reason I didn't go see it. I, I, I couldn't bear that thought. It's got to be something that actually honors the man's legacy, one way or another. It has to at yeah, least I try. care. I care too much. Like I just can't. I um, didn't miss much. Yeah. Nope. Oh, Ben, final thoughts? Nope. <clears throat> Jake, final thoughts? It was fun. I'm glad that we, like, I, it was the thing that we've done on the show that I can't remember less looking forward to something <laughs> and then more feeling rewarded for having done it. So that was fun. I'm mm-hmm. glad. Yep. And your mileage is going to vary with that movie tremendously. Yeah, I, imagine, I can imagine if you're a like 22 year old listening who has no contact, who was born in the 2000s, you might not, just not care at all yep. about this. And, and I get it. I get it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But don't you, Ben? I know. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? No. It's probably a good thing. It probably is. How many? It's the thing I say to all my prey. It sounds cool. It sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool iconic thing. How many poison balloons? Poison balloons sound like a bad thing. How many was an item in this movie? Batarangs. Yeah, I was trying to avoid batarangs. That was obviously the first thing I thought of, but I wanted to be more interesting than that. But maybe it just has to be batarangs. That that spatulas. There we go. Bespatulas. How many bespatulas? Is that how you say it? Uh, sure. Bat- Bespatch, uh, Bachula, many, sl- bas- what was bas- it? Dracula. Bachula. Well, how many bachelors do you give to this movie? I'm not going to give you a number, just how many? Uh, 25. 25 out of 1,000. Wow. Okay. Uh, no, <laughs> we'll say, I will give you a number. We'll say 40 bachelors. No, we'll say 89 bachelors. 89 bachelors. All right. I'll give it. 71 bachelors. 71 bachelors. One year away from. When the Godfather came out. There you go. <laughs> but Jake, same question. 68. 68. All right. I will give it, yeah, I'll be right in there. I'll give it 70, 
bachelors, I guess. Well, no, I, I feel a little on the low side. You can go up. I feel a little on the high side. I uh, let me represent the negative nabob just to, if I'm describing the actual experience that I have. It was a 55 bachelor experience that I had this time. I appreciate a lot about the movie. It's been a fun movie through my life. Mm, I got about 55 bachelors worth of entertainment on this viewing. So I'm a 55. You're a what? A 71? Yeah. And Jake, what's your final answer? I said 68. I think I'm going to stick to it because I know that circumstances conspired to give me all crazy rose-colored glasses, but I really did love watching this movie. I, don't, I won't say that I love the movie, but I really did love watching it this go around. Mm-hmm. There you go. I wouldn't hit a guy with rose-colored glasses. That's my philosophy. All right, folks. Um, no way. Well, before I say that, go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies and you can be part of our discord channel talk about these things with us and there's other cool things you do if you get us up to 500 uh, discord doesn't have or uh, patreon doesn't have like these gold things anymore but hey if you get us up to 500 dollars, we will do the nolan movies and the these the raimi spider-man films so it's up to you you're the real hero Until next time, you gotta go, go with this one.